Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. One of the things that I do, one of my jobs, I got a lot of jobs, but one of my jobs is to take things that are complex, or maybe even things that are boring, and try to make them more interesting or palatable. Like, you don't want to come to this show and hear about, you know, the legal wranglings of the regents of the University of California system. But I'm here to tell you that, you know, John Wilner reported it this morning. There's a question that's looming for this UCLA move to the Big Ten. Could the regents of the University of California system present a roadblock for UCLA? Could they cause UCLA to have to pump the brakes on their departure for the Big Ten Conference. It's interesting, and it's a power play, no doubt, by the University of California Board of Regents. Now, the Board of Regents, they're not going to sue UCLA. The Regents are UCLA's governor-appointed overseeing body. That's like the Board of Directors at Apple suing Apple. Not going to happen. You don't sue your own company. But the Regents will press UCLA to prove that this move is in their best interest, financially and otherwise. Financially, it seems like a no-brainer. It's the otherwise part that's interesting to me. Do you, if you're the Board of Regents, value the student-athlete experience? Do you value tradition? Do you value the Rose Bowl? Do you, uh, do you consider the non-revenue-generating sports that are going to have hell to pay as they uh, meander around the Big 12 footprint playing in cities like Champaign, Illinois, and Lafayette, Indiana, and Bloomington, and Columbus, Ohio, when they should be back uh, on campus at UCLA preparing for midterms? It's a question. It's an interesting play. I am, uh, I am doubtful that the Regents will be successful in convincing UCLA that it shouldn't do what's in its best interest. But I talked to a state of Washington former Senator Mike Baumgartner in Washington just a bit ago, and he told me a couple of interesting things because he's been on the inside of moves like this in the state of Washington. He served on Washington's Senate Higher Education Committee he told me that he doesn't think Cal would have a legal case if the regents approve UCLA's move because it's the same regents that oversee Cal. He also said that he does think there's an angle here for private bondholders of the Cal University debt, that they could have a legal case if it's determined that UCLA's decision would affect their credit worthiness or their bond value. It's interesting. Did you have bondholders on your bingo card? If you did, then uh, mark the spot. If not, uh, it's just an interesting play. There's a lot going on behind the scenes still with this Pac-12 thing. It's quiet, kind of, sort of, 
at least when it comes to the athletic directors or university presidents, uh, nobody's left the conference in the last uh, week or two. But uh, UCLA and USC are gone, presumably in 2024. It's interesting because uh, for a number of reasons, uh, I, am, uh, I wrote today at johnconzano.com, and if you're reading me there, you already know this. If you're not reading me there, you probably should subscribe. You can go to johnconzano.com, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription, whatever works for you. Uh, get it, do it. It'll be delivered in your email inbox. I'm almost writing daily there. I don't want to promise you that I'm writing daily because there may be a vacation day here or there, or there may be a day where I go, you know, this is just a day I need to not write. But I haven't hit that point with this Pac-12 stuff because it's really interesting to me. But I wrote today about ESPN as the potential kingmaker. Think about ESPN. That four-letter sports network that was founded, oh, so many decades ago uh, with Sports Center leading the way and a young uh, baby-faced Dan Patrick on the uh, Sports Center broadcast along with uh, a couple of other unforgettable, uh, you know, Keith Olbermann and uh, other, other unforgettable ESPN personalities. But ESPN has emerged as an event company. You know, I've talked about how ESPN owns basically the college football bowl season. And if you're lamenting the loss of tradition and you're lamenting the loss of the meaning of the bowl season, ESPN has as much to lose as anybody when it comes to the bowl season. Well, I uh, reached back out to uh, my good source, uh, Bob Thompson, who was the president of Fox Sports Network all those years ago. He has negotiated uh, a number of deals with ESPN, Fox, uh, you know, other streaming entities, uh, other conferences, uh, other, um, you know, sports. Uh, you know, he's been around the business for a long time. Um, and I asked him to examine the role that ESPN will play in the future of the Pac-12. Now, he came back with an analysis that I think is really interesting. It is a little bit geeky and inside baseball, so to speak, when it comes to broadcasting. So it's my job to kind of make this more palatable. But he basically told me that ESPN needs the Pac-12 more than anybody and that they would likely pay more than anybody else. Like, ESPN needs West Coast Pacific time zone windows for football. They like basketball inventory as well. They need content for ESPN+. Plus, and they might be interested in the Pac-12 networks because they have successfully taken the ACC network and made it into something. There are a couple of things that Thompson told me that I think are interesting. One, he believes that the Pac-12 will survive if ESPN reaches an agreement with the conference during this negotiating window that we are like a week into. It's a 30-day negotiating window, and ESPN and Fox have exclusive rights to negotiate with the Pac-10 or Pac-12. What do we want to call this thing? Pac-12. Let's call it Pac-12 for now. But the 10 remaining universities... Uh, if they are going to get a reasonable annual payout, it's probably going to come from ESPN, and it's probably going to be coming down the pipeline in this negotiating window. Now, Thompson pointed out that ESPN isn't just like a, you know a nonprofit that's here to to uh, foster college football. ESPN is running a business. ESPN is looking to make a profit. So it's, there's a potential here that ESPN's initial offer to the Pac-12 is a low-ball offer. Because they know Fox is not going to be a bidder. They'd be bidding against themselves in this negotiating window. And they know that the they could potentially lowball the Pac-12 
and force a few members to think about bolting or at least prompt them to seriously explore that option, Arizona State, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, he would put them in the position where they would probably be rubbernecking pretty hard at the Big 12 Conference. They could even, if they wanted to be really shrewd, completely lowball the Pac-12, knowing that they're going to get the offer rejected, knowing that the Pac-12 could fall apart, knowing that a handful of members could skate over to the Big 12, and ESPN at that point could go over to the Big 12 with money in their pocket that they didn't pay the Pac-12 and come after those rights. Now, that would be really shrewd and maybe a little bit cruel, but it's on the table. Now, I asked the former Fox executive to kind of lay this thing out, and he says it's really similar to the summer of 2011, 11 years ago. Pac-12 tried to raid six schools from the Big 12. The hang-up then was, as we remember, Longhorn Network, the University of Texas media creation. Pac-12 didn't want to take on the Longhorn Network, and Fox and ESPN stepped up. And, you know, even though Colorado and Nebraska were leaving the Big 12, they, uh, they gave the rights fees to the Big 12 and kept the Big 12 from cratering that summer. Now, keep in mind... The Pac-12 tried to kill the Big 12 in 2011. Now the Pac-12 may be looking for a partnership with the Big 12. But at the root of this, be sure, it's going to be ESPN. The event company, not the news entity, the the event entity. Because ESPN has migrated from a news outlet into an event company. They love to own the bowl games. They love to own the inventory, especially in the Pacific time zone. They love basketball events, the PK Invitational, all of that stuff. They love to get into that stuff because it gives them programming in the Pacific time zone that they really covet. And I have to think, now that Fox has uh, presumably USC and UCLA under their umbrella, I have to think that ESPN's looking for content that would help kind of rival that or combat the fact that they don't have the Pacific time zone and Fox kind of does at this point. Keep an eye on it and be sure that ESPN is going to end up as the kingmaker here. If ESPN wants the Pac-12 to survive, it is going to offer the Pac-12 a palatable number in this first round of negotiations in this negotiating window. I'm told that the Pac-12 is looking for a number of somewhere around 350 to $450 million. They were in line for about a $500 million payday prior to UCLA and USC leaving. That number has now been forecast to be closer to $300 million. I think they're looking to pick up another $50 million to $100 million in there, and it'll be interesting to see if ESPN comes in with an offer that will make the Pac-12 conference's 10 remaining members whole. Now, keep in mind, those 10 remaining members are only splitting the pot 10 ways now and not 12 because of UCLA and USC. So they don't quite need to get to $500 million to go, hey, we got about what we should get before. That number is still in the $400 millions, but it's, you know, it's significantly less given that you're not going to give away what would have been uh, another $100 million to USC and UCLA in that pot. This is all interesting stuff. And I'm fascinated by it because we've grown up with ESPN. We've watched ESPN blossom. We've watched that network go from 24-hour sports coverage when we didn't have 24-hour sports coverage into a legitimate news agency 
into morphing into a more of an entertainment industry agency that is interested in putting on sporting events and selling the advertising in and around them and all that shoulder programming that they have. But it's interesting to note that now ESPN is sitting in this seat as kingmaker. The ESPN can sit down and wave its wand and go, hey, Pac-12, I want you to survive in your present form. Here's the money we're going to infuse into you. And, oh, by the way, we'll partner you up with the ACC. And you really have this swath east coast to west coast of programming for ESPN that works. There are some other players that could come in in the 11th hour, CBS among them. I'm told Turner's kicking the tires on sports by TV executives, but uh, not in this 30-day exclusive negotiating window. And it's very important because I kind of feel like there are some restless souls inside the Pac-12 right now. There's some anxiety. People are anxious. There's some hand-wringing, of course, watching the Bruins and the Trojans go out the door, losing the L.A. market. There's uh, you know, a little bit of a concern, of course, from the members who are remaining behind. But I'm a little worried about Arizona State. I said it on yesterday's show. I'm just, I, 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 my spider senses are tingling, and I, and I don't like how Arizona State is acting. And so I kind of feel like maybe if there's going to be a wrinkle thrown into all of this, it will come from that camp at Arizona State that has been squirrely on a number of fronts, from Herm Edwards to the way that boosters have been allowed to run amok there on campus to the NCAA investigation and whatnot and you know, the president at Arizona State, Michael Crow, got this great reputation as being a, you know, academic. You know, he's the university campus, loves him. But you know, ultimately, we all kind of know he was an enabler for Larry Scott, the former commissioner. There's just a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say it's arrogance. Uh, I just, it's a little bit of squirreliness going on at Arizona State right now. So I, I kind of wonder if Arizona State's plan is to let ESPN bid and then go, hey, we're in the Phoenix market. You don't want to lose us like you lost L.A., so give us more than an equal share. I, I kind of expect that's what Arizona State might do here. So keep an eye on that as a potential wild card. So much to talk about. Uh, my dad went through the Dutch Bros drive through yesterday. i got to tell that story coming up next. It left everybody laughing. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. You got the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Several years ago, I was dispatched to the Fresno Grizzlies opening game. They were then the AAA team for the San Francisco Giants. And they were opening a new ballpark, AAA ballpark in Fresno. It's the very first night that the ballpark was going to be open. And my editor said, hey, do you want to go out and write about the new ballpark? It was a big deal in Fresno. I was working at the Fresno Bee, great newspaper, as a sports columnist. Uh, the uh, alumni of the Fresno Bee, uh, it's an illustrious group of journalists. Andy Katz, the former ESPN college basketball insider, he, uh, he was uh, one of my colleagues at the Fresno Bee. Jeff Passan, who you now read on Major League Baseball, was also at the Fresno Bee. John Branch, Pulitzer Prize winner of the New York Times, was at the Fresno Bee. Adrian Wojnarowski, Woj Bombs, was at the Fresno Bee. Uh, Eric Prisbell, who uh, went on to work for the Washington Post and USA Today, 
was at the Fresno Bee. A uh, whole bunch of writers went through there, and I had the great fortune of going through there and working. And one of the cool things about that paper, it it undeniably was, I think, the most talented, best group of journalists that I ever worked with. But one of the things that made it great was on a daily basis, you had to wake up and you had to go prove yourself. And so when they sent me out to, hey, go go write about the new minor league ballpark, I was really hungry to look for an angle. Like, I was out trying to uh, figure out what the angle is and, you know, what could I do? Because if you didn't come up with something good, you'd look bad. And so I, I was there not to write about the baseball but to find a good story. And so as I'm walking around this ballpark that was just open, I'll never forget what I wore. It was kind of one of those cool nights that, you know, it wasn't like a typical blistering hot Fresno night. It was cooler because I know because I, I had a light sweater on. And the sweater was kind of this uh, cream color or beige. I don't know what it was, but it was kind of a light brown. And I, I'll never forget it because I leaned against a railing at the ballpark right when I got there, and the ballpark railings were painted green. And on my sweater, uh, the green railing left a green stripe across, like, the middle of my back because I had leaned across the railing. Like, that was the last time I wore that sweater, but it was a good memory. But I remember walking around the stadium, and I was looking for an angle, and I saw um, uh, a, a gentleman holding his daughter right behind home plate, like a, almost like a newborn baby behind home plate. Now, I wasn't sure I was going to write about it, but it caught my attention, and so I decided to walk over to the guy. And it, you know, it looked to me, he had white hair. It looked to me like it was Grandpa holding the baby. And so I, I stuck my foot in my mouth, and I did what probably every reporter or columnist or journalist has done at some point of their career. And I walked up and I said, hey, nice to meet you. I introduced myself, and I said, is this your granddaughter's first game? And the guy just looked at me, and he said, she's my daughter. And I said, okay, thanks, and I walked away because <laughs> I was embarrassed. I was reminded of this yesterday as uh, I got off air yesterday at 6 o'clock. Show is over. My parents are visiting. They're on this extended visit from California. It's very nice to see them. I love that they're here. And, but uh, I got off air, and my dad and mom, who are in their 70s, were sitting at the kitchen table, and they said, we got a story for you. And my dad loves Dutch Bros coffee. He does. He just loves, he kind of loves, yeah, the caffeine. He loves the sugar, I'm sure. But he, I just think he loves the experience. Because when you drive through a Dutch Bros, we all know this, like whether you are a fan of the coffee or not, you cannot deny that they have captured something with their employees and their training that is magical. Like everybody in that Dutch Bros kiosk is having the time of their life. They're playing good music. They're all celebrating. The energy's good. They're smiling. They're enthusiastic. And, and so my dad likes to go through the Dutch Bros drive-thru. So he took my mom, and they went through the Dutch Bros drive-thru. They were looking for a cold drink. And they were greeted by a smiling, enthusiastic barista who said, Hey, how's it going? It was warm yesterday. And so my dad said, 94 today. And the barista answered back, happy birthday. I never, I, I started laughing so hard when I heard that. My dad's in his 70s. She was trying to be polite. 
She was trying to be uh, nice, but like me with that dad at the ballpark who I thought was the grandfather, the barista was horrified. Uh, but I got to thank her because it was a delightful, funny, memorable moment, and it's proof that you can get more than caffeine at those magical little windmill kiosks. So it was neat to <laughs> neat to hear that story. And I don't know who's back in studio. If it's uh, Stephen, are you in today? Is that who, that who we got over uh, there? Yeah, it's uh, it's me yeah. and Sean today. Oh, you guys. All right. So when I bring that up, my dad's in his seventies. She says, "How's it going?" He goes, "It's ninety-four. He goes ninety-four today." And she goes, "Happy birthday!" I laughed so hard because my dad was embarrassed, of course, because he thought she thinks I'm ninety-four. Yeah. But in the end, I think it's a fun story. No, that's a great story. And I, my initial thought was, you know, what, at what age? Does it all just kind of blend together, right? Like you, <laughs> you said your parents are in their seventies. Like I feel yeah. like that's a little, a little young to think it could be ninety, right? Like it just seems like a little too young. I for know. Me. But but if you're a barista and you hear what you think is some guy who's in his seventies going ninety four today, like yeah, you know you 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 don't want to be rude. So you know I guess you could say you don't look ninety four. Yeah. But, that's kind of yeah, <laughs> it's a little rude too, I guess. But it, yeah, I, I'm with you. Like it's uh, it's definitely interesting that she would say that because well, it's not interesting because it's like that's the that's the polite thing to do. Like she sees yeah. so many people, she's just trying to be nice to everybody. Yes. But my my other thought was I used to work at Costco, John, and uh, this guy, this cashier, told me this story about when he was cashiering, and he did this to a woman. Is you know he said, oh, how far along are you? And oh, no, she's like, no, I'm no, not no, pregnant. No. no. <laughs> and, and that, so that was my just I was like, mm, I, and so ever since I heard that story, I'm you know I'm very careful with what I say to people. I want to throw this out to our listeners. Do you have a story like that? Uh, somebody put their foot in their mouth, or maybe just an alignment of circumstances that made something a delightful experience. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. I got another one. My mom, well, my mom became a nurse, and you know she went to she went back to school after we all left the house and left for college. She went back to school and became a nurse. But she became a mother baby nurse, and she tells tells a story that you got to be really careful when in situations like that. To your point about the Costco person who said, "Hey, you know, you got to make sure you don't assume anything." My mom says, "Well, I heard a story. There was a football coach uh, at Fresno State. He was a wide receiver coach. His name was Vince Wesson, and Vince is African American, and Vince's wife is white, and Vince." his wife was having their baby and Vince was gone a lot. And he lamented to me throughout the season that I covered there. I was covering David Carr when Carr was there as the quarterback and Fresno state was pretty damn good. And Carr ended up being the number one pick in the draft of the Houston Texans. But, but Wesson told me that season, he pulled me aside. And he said, I got to tell you something. He said, I have been um, really good about making these OBGYN appointments prior to the birth of the baby. He said, like, my wife told me, look, you missed so much. You missed everything. You're not here. You're traveling. You're recruiting. You know, can you please do this one thing for me and make all of these appointments? And so he was really good about saying to uh, the co head coach at the time, Pat Hill, hey, I have to be at this meeting. There's only going to be about eight of these appointments, but I have to make these appointments. So I might be dashing off like while the team is conditioning or whatnot. And Fresno State said, okay, we'll grant you an exception. You can go do it. Well, Vince told me a story. Vince went uh, in the prior week. It was late in the pregnancy, third trimester. 
His wife had gone in for an appointment, and Vince was running late. And so Vince was heading over to the OBGYN's office, scrambling through traffic, parked the car, scrambles into the office, goes to the front desk. He's out of breath, and he says, I'm here for my wife's appointment. And the receptionist says, room three. And Vince goes down the hall, and all they heard was a shriek and a door slamming. And Vince walked back out, and he said, my wife is white. They had sent him into the room that contained an African-American woman. They had assumed that Vince was there as her partner. And I, my, I, I, Vince told me that story, and I said, Vince, you can laugh about that story now. And he said, I can. He said, but that woman did not think it was funny. He said she was on the table in the stirrups waiting for the doctor to come in, and he came rushing through the door. So, no, you never, you never assume anything. Uh, Sean, give me an idea. You got a story like that? Oh, man. That's a, I, I cringed as you told that one. That's a, that's Did you a see tough it one. Did you see that one coming? No, no. I uh, I thought you were going to go a different direction with that one. I thought you were, you said, like, my wife is white. I thought you meant, like, ghost white as if she was, oh. like, going into labor at the yeah. time and they had to rush over. Um, a story like that, you know, I've, ah, gosh, you know, just to defend the barista that, um, you know, with your, with your father, there's just a million things going on sometimes, you know, at work and especially when you're younger, like sometimes it's just like the attention span's not always there. You know, she's probably thinking about making the drink and doing a million other things and sometimes it just slips out like that. You know, I've, I've worked a lot of service jobs like that. I worked at five guys burgers. I worked at noodles and company and Man, I could probably think of several times where I accidentally didn't really think of the whole context of the conversation I was having because there was a million other things on my mind. I went when I, I just keep thinking about that stadium in Fresno because I felt so bad because I could tell essentially what I was telling that dad is you're too old to be a dad. Like, you're an old guy. What are you doing having a baby at your age, basically, is what I was saying when I said, to, you know, is this your granddaughter's first game? He just kind of deadpanned and looked at me like, it's my daughter. And I just, I, I never, I felt terrible. My dad told me that, I said, did you, did you at least get a free drink out of the deal? He said, no. He said, because, you know, my mom was ordering a caffeinated beverage. My dad was just getting a glass of water. So I said, you got basically got told you were 94 years old and move along. But he still loves Dutch Bros. Leave it here. Coming up, uh, we'll play some Punch It audio. we got big guests on today's show as well. Dan Bickley's going to be joining us from Arizona, Arizona Sports 98.7 FM. He'll be joining us at 4 o'clock to talk about the Arizona schools. Where are their heads in this? And we'll go to Stanford late in the show. John Platts is the Stanford play-by-play broadcaster. He's going to join us to talk about the sentiment at Stanford. It's a very different campus uh, within the Pac-12 footprint. We'll talk to Platts about that coming up at 5.15. I want you to leave it here. You get the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up on Thursday, 10th annual bald-faced truth foundation celebrity golf tournament. A whole bunch of celebrity golfers will be playing golf out at the reserve golf course. Supporting kids in art, music, education, and athletics. Uh, Big event going on Thursday. You'll hear the live broadcast right here on this radio show. 
Um, the uh, celebrity golfers include Miss Oregon USA, the reigning Miss Oregon. Ariel Freitag will be there. Jimmy Joyce, former Major League Baseball umpire, will be there. Love Jim Joyce. Uh, he has volunteered his time and effort and energy and celebrity for years to help the BFT Foundation. Mike Walter, former 49er linebacker, former University of Oregon product, will be there playing golf. So will Alex Molden, the NFL defensive back uh, and former Oregon Duck. Mark Wazikowski, Oregon Ducks baseball coach, will be out there playing golf. You're going to hear all of these celebrities as part of the coverage right here on the radio station you're listening to. Mike Jorgensen, uh, former Ducks quarterback and radio analyst, will be there. Chelsea Gregg, Portland State women's basketball coach. She's playing. So is Mark Radford, former Oregon State star basketball player. The Orange Express, former NBA player Mark Radford, will be there. So will be Bobby Gross, uh, former trailblazer and world champion in 1977. He'll be out there. Chase Coburn, the Basketball coach at Portland State will be there. So will Shante Liggins, the University of Portland men's basketball coach. Tom Gorman, former Major League Baseball pitcher who makes his home right here in the Portland metropolitan area, will be out there playing golf, along with John Johnson, the athletic director at Portland State, and a whole bunch of other media celebrities and others. You'll hear it all right here on this radio station, 10th Annual Celebrity Golf Tournament going on Thursday. At the Reserve Golf Course, I want to thank uh, Chris Rogers and Ryan and the team at the Reserve. They've done a fantastic job putting this tournament together. If you're thinking about a golf tournament, that's a great place to have your tournament and hold it. Man, you talk about turnkey. They do all the legwork. All you do is show up and play golf. And uh, the Reserve does a tremendous job with a bunch of those events. Uh, will you guys be out there? Sean, are you going to be out there? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is, uh, that's true. And I, um, yeah, it sounds like I might be, I might be in charge of that, uh, that BFT broadcast on, uh, on Thursday. So <laughs> you, you can be what ready for that. What do you mean might be? You, uh, well, there's what? a, uh, you know, I don't want to go too much into the details, but our, our boss, Jude Anubi, there's a little bit of a, uh, a COVID situation going yeah. on right now. So it's kind yeah. of, it's a little bit fluid. Listen, and then, listen. What's it, up? Consider me like Lou Pinella, okay? <laughs> and you're you're a you're a young starting pitcher. You're getting the ball, okay? <laughs> yeah. You're... So Steven, I'll be out there, and uh, we'll have. A... <laughs> I love the baseball analogy. Steven will be ball, back in the man. studio, and uh, yeah, we're excited. You know, Steven and I, uh, we're hosting the polls today. We got a couple of BFTs later this week, so uh, yes. you know, exciting times for us. Okay, John so... calling in the lefty and the double switch. I mean, that's <laughs> all it is. is. I'm pointing to my left arm here. Um, here's the thing. Like, I, I had a baseball coach really early in my, like, my high school coach who was really good. Like, his real strength was with preparation, okay? We were, we were good. We were talented, but he was a preparation master, and he gave me something in high school that I still use even today, and I, and I, want, I really want you to employ, Sean, as I heard you talk about maybe being in charge of the broadcast. You have to assume you are in charge of the broadcast until right. someone calls you off. Right. That's okay? true. Because it's like a rain delay. He told us this. Like, we would run into rain delays in California or rainouts, And we would wake up, and you look outside, and you go, we're not going to play today. You can't do that. And psychologically, you have to say, we're playing. We're playing. We're playing until the umpire says you're not playing. Because otherwise, it is a psychological adjustment. So you are 
getting the ball and you're hosting the show Thursday. Yeah, and that's also an opportunity you just don't say no to. Like, sure, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. Like, sure, I haven't hosted a radio show. And, you know, I got to host a segment of the Pulse last week. But other than that, it's been since my college days where I've full-on been the, you know, the guy in charge for a radio show. And we're talking about the number one sports radio show in Oregon. But, man, when you're trying to, you know, come up in this business, you don't say no to an opportunity like that. No, you don't. And the beautiful thing Thursday is you're going to have built-in guests. So you're going to get Miss Oregon, who will saunter by your broadcast booth and give you five minutes and talk about what it's like to be Miss Oregon. And then here comes Jim Joyce, who you know was a Major League Baseball umpire who called a bunch of World Series and All-Star games. And here comes Mike Walter, who won multiple Super Bowl titles with the Niners. And then here's Alex Molden, who we've all heard on this show, and you know he's got a lot of life experience and as a first-round NFL draft pick and beyond. And, oh, by the way, here's Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon baseball coach. Hey, what's it like to be in a conference where you don't know, like, beyond the next couple of years who's going to be in the conference? And Chelsea Gregg and Mark Radford and Bobby Gross and – you're going to get all those guests like back to back to back to back. You're going to have fun time talking to them. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be awesome. Is there any chance that you'll be a guest on your own show, or sure. you're going to be busy? If you want me on air, you'll get me. We'll book you. Now, yeah, yeah. You know, like Breakside the- Brewery is going to be pouring some beers out there, so you might have a <laughs> you know you might have a beer in me while I'm while I'm on air for the first time. But who knows, Johnny? You're I sound like you were trying to make him uh, a little nervous by having Miss Oregon on. I mean, I'd be uh, nervous that she's in the same room. She should be nervous about being on this show. That's like right. she, she's representing the state, yeah. this statewide radio show. She should be on this show. Fair. Yeah, you, you know, know, John, I, I just think it's, uh, it's underrated how, I, I, you know, I haven't done it yet, but I just think it's not the talking part that. I'm not going to say nervous, but it's not the talking part that startles me a little bit. It's more of just like getting out at 59:35. You know, it's kind of more the uh, the technical, like the techno- technological parts of this show. Um, you know, more of the radio tidbits that are going to be the difficult part for me. I think. So you're talking about sort of the blocking and tackling is more what you're worried about. You're not worried about like the ball being in the air or whatnot. You're are we lined up right? That right. kind of stuff. The exactly. formalities. But I'll just say this: like the only. The only real thing you need to worry about is if you got a good board operator, which you're going to have in your ear, he's going to say to you, hey, we got to go when we got to go. So you just need to kind of uh, make sure you're listening and and have fun with it. That's the advice I always give. Like I had people when I first started on air tell me how hard it was. They were mostly radio show hosts who didn't want me to take their job. They were telling me, oh, this is really hard. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't host a show by yourself and all this stuff. And it's true. Like, I sucked in the first couple of broadcasts. But you just need, you need some reps. And I think that's a great opportunity for you to get some reps. And it's, very, it's a very forgiving first show because the guests are going to carry you. Mm-hmm. Like, people just want to hear the guests. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I can already kind of predict how it's going to go. You know, I'm sure I'll be a little bit nervous at the beginning. And then, like you said, have fun with it, and that'll be kind of be the mantra as the show goes on. Like, I bet you second hour, third hour will be a lot easier because that's the part where I'll settle in a little bit, sit back, you know, like, uh, and just have fun with it. So that's that's kind of the mindset I'm trying to have. It'll be great. We'll get you some help out there, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll make sure that I'll see you. But make sure you hydrate, you get a good night of sleep, and the rest will be easy. And, of course, if you need a good hot take, you know, just throw it over to me exactly say you're not alone you're basically being told you got help here steve and sean you guys got it no problem i'm not worried about it and listeners tune in because even if it's bad it'll be good you know what i mean that's the best part about radio when it's bad sometimes that's the best (laughs) in between is what you don't want (laughs) yeah not boring it's not gonna be boring it's either gonna be really good or really bad yeah i think some of like i one time okay so 
Anna was not originally a member of the show cast, and, and I don't think she wanted to be. But Pandemic, you know, the show was home. There was no games going on. I was getting, you know, encouraged by station management, like just talk about, you know, the things that people care about or what you're interested in and your family or whatnot. Everybody's relating to the same thing. It's true. But Anna started coming into the show, and very early on, we had like an on-air kind of argument, like any couple could relate to, and I think it had to do with Anna like tinkering around with the buttons on the uh, on the control board when she should not. She doesn't know what they're doing, what she's doing with it. And uh, we got into a little mini spat on air, and I think the listeners picked up on it. Like, hey, Anna and John are not feeling each other right now. Like, they're they're at odds right now. And then Anna left the studio because she was so frustrated. She just got up and walked out. I had to come back on air in the next segment, awkward and alone. And the listener knew it. And I th- I think it was it was so awkward. It was good. Like I had people afterwards going, "Oh, that was like I could relate to that." Like when you are when you and your spouse are not seeing eye to eye on something, and everybody is listening or watching, uh, that can be really uncomfortable. But it was still it was good radio. Yeah, I remember uh, at my old job that happened as well, where there's a big fight right before the show, and it was the first segment. They didn't finish even prepping the show or anything, and they just went on air. And you could tell—I mean, I knew because they were just fighting—but you could tell there was that you know a little bit of tension. And I hope everyone uh, that was listening caught on to that. And I think they did. Yeah, people pay attention. All right, coming up, we got our big splash uh, coming up at four o'clock. Dan Bickley will be joining us. Uh, he hosts a show in Phoenix. I went on his show. Last week, Arizona Sports 98.7 FM. Bickley will be joining us to talk about Arizona and Arizona State. I think it's a really different equation for them. He's coming up just in about 15 minutes, so I want you here for it. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Saban uh, was talking on college football podcast uh, about the competitive uh, balance in sports. I want to play this clip from that podcast. Here's Nick Saban, the Alabama coach. My biggest concern is competitive balance. You know, the NFL, which I was involved in for eight years, every rule that they have, is to create competitive balance. And if they could have every team go 8-8, eight and eight, right, so at the end of the season, every team was playing their last game to get in the playoffs, they would be ecstatic. Right? Because how much fan interest does that create? You know, how, how much TV ratings and all the things that go into all these things um, does that create? We don't have any guardrails on what we're doing right now. All right, so um, we have no restrictions on who can do what. Some people are going to be capable of doing certain things. Other people are not going to be capable. But the, the, the bottom line is, is we'll lose competitive balance, which everything we've always done in college football is to maintain competitive balance. Same scholarship, 
Everybody had to play by the same rules and whether it was recruiting or whatever. All right. So um, right now, that, that's not that, that's not how it is. Nick Saban, I think, preaching to the choir here. I, I don't necessarily support a model where, like, every decision needs to be made in the name of competitive balance. But I think when you have a swath of the country, and I don't care if it was the East Coast or the West Coast, just happens to be the Pacific time zone in this case, that is cut out of the playoff, that doesn't matter, it, it raises eyebrows, it raises questions, it raises logical conclusions, frankly, about what is going on with college athletics. When you have the Big Ten Conference that's rooted in the Midwest, central part of our country, reaching over and plucking two prime entities from the Pacific time zone and going, we'll take those two, it just feels to me like you know somebody, if there were a commissioner of college athletics or a college football czar, should have stepped in and said, no, 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 that's not going to help the health of the game. But there's nobody doing that right now. Television cares about television and revenue. The conferences themselves care about getting into the playoff and generating huge media deals. The universities are bleeding cash, don't know how to balance their own books, uh, spend now, figure it out later, build a building, hire a coach, pay five, eight, nine ten million dollars a year to their coaches long-term contracts oh and oh all of a sudden here comes name image likeness and the transfer portal okay that's good for the players but there's nobody looking out for the game the game itself steven sean doesn't the game need a commissioner definitely and i think that's what's been missing this whole time in college football and right now is you know the you know uh, accumulation of all that that has that hasn't been happening had not having a commissioner and that's like you said the Pac-12 getting picked apart right now and them having to regroup on the fly uh, because just right now nobody besides even you know even the West Coasters so a lot of people out here don't even feel like the Pac-12 is a real threat in the college football landscape but if you're outside the West Coast nobody thinks they are and so for you know, the two LA schools to leave there's got to be some type of you know policing officer that can you know bring some more uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but just bring it back into place. And like like Nick Sam said, get some more balance. That's the word I'm looking for. Get more balance in the landscape of college football. Yeah, I, I, there, yeah go ahead. Go sorry, ahead, I, I totally agree with Steven. And I agree with everything Saban said, except it just bugs me every time that Saban speaks out. Because, first of all, you know, the, the system kind of favors him, right? Like, he, he's talking about competitive and balance. Well, he's the one with the, the super team, so to speak. He's the one that's winning all these national titles. And plus, every single time that Nick Saban does one of these interviews, guess who was interviewing him? It was Greg McElroy, one of his former quarterbacks. So he always sets up these interviews where no one can press him. He doesn't talk with, you know, a real journalist. He talks with a former player every single time. And he always has negative things to say about the system that it, it feels like the system kind of favors him right now. And even, you know, when he's winning, he he does complain about things that would threaten that. Like, I remember when Oregon was playing fast, Nick Saban, you know, tried to raise the idea that it was dangerous to play fast because it was an equalizer. It was an equalizer for a program like Oregon that couldn't recruit players at the point of attack that could physically just move the pile. Chip Kelly found an angle, right? He found a, you know, a creative way to, all right, let's. this is within the rules, let's do it. Nick Saban didn't want to do that. He didn't want to play fast. Nick Saban wanted to play slow and steady. Everybody line up, and the most physical best team should win. 
because it benefited him. So you're right in that sense. But I just think there should be like I grew up thinking like hearing about the 1919 Black Sox and Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner of baseball, was brought in. He was a judge. He was brought in to clean up baseball. He banned Joe Jackson. Broke my heart when I read all about it later. Eight men out. Great movie. But Kennesaw Mountain Landis was brought in to clean up baseball. I kind of feel like commissioners in today's world are not really about the sport. Like, I don't know if Roger Goodell cares about the sport as much as he does about the valuations of the teams. I know Adam Silver, same in the NBA. Gary Bettman in the NHL. Uh, Rob Manfred in Major League Baseball. They work for the owners. But I kind of think, like, college athletics, what would be really cool is if everybody could get on board and go, look, we need to hire one person and give that person the authority to kind of clean up the game, police the game a little bit. It, it might not be the best for my conference or your conference, but somebody who has a voice in the room that can speak for the game and speak for fans and, hey, guess what, guys, this playoff thing isn't working because it's cutting out the Pacific time zone. That's bad. We're going to eliminate a whole bunch of people in the western part of the United States that could be college football fans and viewers, and we are alienating them. This is not good. So we need to think about a playoff with 12 teams and automatic qualifiers for conferences like the Pac-12. Like, that should have been a conversation months ago. But, John, I I wanted to ask you something. Do you think there would be a long line of people that would line up for that job? Because it would be pretty thankless. Because there's going to be at least one conference, one school, one part of the country that's going to hate every decision you make. Yes, it would be thankless. But I I think there would be people like Oliver Luck, who uh, has been talked about, like, you know, it, it, basically the NCAA is going to be replaced by something. It would ha- I would like it to be replaced by this. How about Condoleezza Rice, somebody like that who, ha- you know, has been part of the college football playoff selection committee and understands, like, what's tr- what, the, what the conferences are trying to do. Like, we all know the conferences, the Big Ten and the SEC are just trying to game the system. Like, they're trying to get five or six teams into the playoff so that they can collect $20 million per entry for their own conference. Like, I get it. I get what they're trying to do. But the aim of a playoff should be to capture every team that has possibly has a chance to, to win this thing and let them play it out on the field. And I don't think that's going to happen here. We're going to Arizona next. Dan Bickley. He covers Arizona, Arizona State for Arizona Sports 98.6 FM. He's joining us next to talk about where their minds are as the Pac-12 finds itself trying to f- survive. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I've known Dan Bickley and known of Dan Bickley for a long time. No, that doesn't make him old. Makes me old. Sports columnist, on-air radio show host, Arizona Sports 98.7 FM. A really good follow on Twitter. Tweeting stuff about NASA. And other things. Dan Bickley joining us from the face of the sun. In Arizona, what's the temperature there? What's what's the temp? Oh, it's about it's it's a hundred in hell outside here, man, and it's and it's swampy on top of it, dude. 
seriously, I, I, I made a run to the store about a half an hour ago, and I saw nobody on the road. I mean, nobody on the roads. It is a dystopian Hades kind of nightmare in Arizona right now. <laughs> We're talking to Mad Max, who's in the desert of Arizona. That's me. That's me. Dan, let me ask you, uh, because, you know, I, I know I joined your show, but I kind of want to have our listeners kind of get your impression and maybe the region that you work in. When this all broke, USC, UCLA, what was the reaction of the typical uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Arizona State fan? The, um, the reaction has been very fascinating because this is news of a seismic variety. This is ground-shaking kind of stuff. But to understand how far ASU has fallen in the last couple of years in the Valley, you have to understand how traumatized uh, the diehard Sun Devil fans are. Uh, no matter how many they may be, uh, there was a time when we went in the Valley here from laughing at this idea of Herm Edwards as head coach and this professional model unveiled by Michael Crow and Ray Anderson to kind of stepping back going, oh, my goodness, they're actually recruiting California. Look at them flex. Look at Antonio Pierce. Look at his staff. This is actually happening. And then the bottom fell out of the tub. And and after that happened, um, we experienced this incredible year of denial last year from the football program where they all tried to act like nothing was wrong when everything was wrong. And and I talked to no no fewer than 15 diehard alumni who had quite literally lost their faith. They had lost their religion. They had lost everything. They had realized that, look, we have not competed for a Rose Bowl in 25 years. It's about time we wake up and realize it's never going to happen for us. So this news that has happened with the Pac-12 has come at a time when the ASU fan base, I don't think, has ever been more apathetic um, or, or more numb to everything that is going on. And yet I, I do believe they understand that there is this incredible – uh, weirdness happening all around them. And, and listen, uh, you and John Wilner, you, you guys are a credit to this conference. Um, you guys are the shining lights of journalism when it comes to the Pac-12. You've enlightening, been enlightening people for years about this. And I'm not just saying that because that you and I are friends, but because the truth, and you know this to be true. Michael Crow is, is a guy right now who I believe is really stuck between a couple of different ideals. Number one, if you really want to become a football-centric school, if you really want to become that sleeping giant that has sort of come awake, it, 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 the, the, the Big 12 offers a lot to you if you're ASU and if you're an Arizona school. But at the same time, Michael Crow completely vibes on this innovation and the changes in the academia at Arizona State University. And to be honest, the latter is no joke. I've been around here a long time. I remember when ASU, as an academic institution, was far inferior to what it is now. It has really become, both my kids are there. They both love it. They feel intellectually challenged. Dr. Michael Crow's done incredible things in upgrading the quality of education at ASU, but at the same time, um, there have been a lot of blind spots that have been created, and there have been blind spots in the name of Larry Scott, um, who Michael Crow has looked at and gone, oh, there's a guy with innovation and big dreams and big ambition, big ideas, and he likes to spend a lot of money. I, I relate to that, and, and he's believed in that. 
And, and I think ASU is stuck on the fence now between where, what do we want to be and where do we want to go? Do we want to be part of a conference that's, that's known for academia and innovation, or do we want to go to a conference? Do we want to travel to Stillwater? Do we want to be part of land-grant U? Uh, I, I think they really don't have much of an idea of what they want to accomplish here. Uh, but, but it's par for the course with what's going on in college football at the moment. We're talking to Dan Bickley, Arizona sports columnist, radio show host, Arizona State is interesting here because when this breaks, immediately people began to speculate that Arizona State would jump to the Big 12. Um, I'm hearing from some athletic directors in the conference that right now they are galvanized. But, you know, how tempting is that for Arizona State right now to look over and go, hey, maybe uh, maybe they have the answer that the Pac-12 doesn't have? The um, I, I think when you look at what at what's happening at, at a possible salvage, if you're talking about a Pac-12 that can be salvaged after the departure mostly of USC and of course UCLA, and and uh, you and I know that the logistics of this are absolutely absurd. That you know UCLA and Penn State could play a conference volleyball match in the coming years. It, it just it it strikes at the sensibility of all of this. I think if you look at a Pac-12, and if you reimagine it as a 12-team conference, and you look at a Southern division that has ASU and, and Arizona and Colorado and Utah, and you get your four border states, and then maybe you throw in a San Diego State and maybe a Fresno State, and, and you have Oregon and Cal and Stanford and, and Washington and Washington State and Oregon State anchoring the North, it's not bad. But, but at the same time, to me, it also requires a great spirit of – of cooperation between the schools. There can't be any bitterness. There has to be something that we are all in this together, and we are not only going to make the most of this, we are going to really try to max this thing out. And there's elements involved in all of those schools that I mentioned, um, uh, particularly with Phil Knight in Oregon and, and the television market um, here in the Valley, that, that, that you could actually build a real strong case for it. But at the same time, uh, where does that leave you? Uh, I, I know, for instance, you know, I, I talk to people in the Valley and I talk to alumni at both Arizona and ASU, and, and by way of something that your listeners might be able to kind of relate to, there's a lot of people here in the Valley who just kind of scoff at the fact that, oh, you know, Oregon once thought that they were the leaders in college athletics. Where are they now when, when television rankings are running the ship and, and, and when TV rankings and markets are, are determining everything? That is exactly the kind of vibe and atmosphere that would make a revamped Pac-12 fail before it even got started. There would have to be a total, everybody committed 100% to what you were trying to accomplish um, under George Klyavkov to, to even give this thing a shot at working. Um, I, 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 if it was me, that's where I would go. I, I, I would not want to give up on what make and what makes and what has made the Pac-12 really good um, for the for the obvious appeals of the Big 12 as a basketball slash football conference. Um, and, and I think that's where they're going, and I think there's going to be a lot of individual negotiations. I think that in a revamped Pac-12, I think there's some schools who might think they have right to more equity than others, particularly yes. any newcomers you might invite. But, but I think that's exactly the kind of vibe that would kill this thing before it even gets started. It would really have to be a true, pure partnership if it has a chance to work. Dan Bickley with us uh, from Arizona. Dan, that's one of the things I was I've been wondering about with Arizona State because if 
television households are running the show. You look at Arizona State's television footprint in Phoenix, and if I'm ASU, I might be inclined to go, hey, I'm worth more than Salt Lake City. I'm worth more than the state of Oregon. Uh, you know, I need to get more than a one share. Do you think that's on the table for ASU? Or, you know, I guess we're speculating, but where where their head might be on that. Yeah, and and, and I've, I've actually wondered about the same things, and I've asked those same kind of questions, and, and nobody quite seems to know what ASU wants. And, and, and ASU in Arizona, obviously, by the Charter, the charter of Arizona, um, schools, they're they're a, 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 a combo platter, so it, it, that's that. But but from an ASU perspective, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure whether or not um, they would be looking to to, to kind of gain more equity than other schools involved, just based on the numbers. Because here here's the truth of it all. Um, I, I would venture to guess in your state, among your listeners, this story is. Um, gigantic because you have got at least with the Ducks a school that has been periphery national champions for the better part of a decade and a half, and and so when I take a look at this and I look at Arizona State and I look at where they are in the valley, they have never been less relevant, John. And 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 you know the vibe out here. This is a transient uh, market full of a lot of sports fans from a lot of different places. And, and, but, but the fact of the matter is there has been one disappointment after another, after another, after another. So even though you are offering up a very large television market in the fifth largest city in the United States, you are not offering up a fully vested college market. And, and those are just the facts. And, 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 and until, I don't know, until ASU finds a higher plane, because there's a lot of, there's a ton of disenchantment with Ray Anderson. There's a ton of, of skepticism of why Herm Edwards is still coaching here. There's a ton of skepticism about what Michael Crow is doing in terms of trying to guide this organization um, to, to reach the kind of athletic goals that they should have for a school commensurate of their size. It, it, there's just a lot of confusion, period, full stop. Dan, you, you mentioned Herm Edwards. It, I kind of think this in a weird way takes the pressure off of that equation at media day. I think, you know, coming up here in uh, what couple of weeks, we'll, we'll be talking about UCLA and USC. Does this in some weird way help Arizona state in, in under, in that respect? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what ASU is kind of realized is that whatever is coming, if, if the NCAA still has any kind of teeth that they ever, if they even have a sanctioning body left in them, if they have any authority left in them, then we're going to lean on Herm Edwards to ride this thing out. And I think pragmatically they've realized that if we need to clean house, this is not the time to do it. And I think they're basically um, leaning on Ray to lean on Herm to, 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 to clean up this mess, if you will. It's, it, it's really it, it's a terrible irony to, to Sun Devil fans in the Valley who, like I said earlier, finally saw this school recruiting on a level that they hadn't done in a long time, finally taking advantage of those down years at USC and UCLA, finally getting into into Southern California and in those markets to the point where they were, uh, yeah, I mean, quite brazenly flexing about it on Twitter. I, I, I just, I, I think the school got to the point where 
they they began to get real cavalier with the rules at a time when they didn't even need to because the one thing they had going for them, they had recruiting going in their favor. They had ESPN as a powerful uh, propaganda arm behind Herm Edwards, and, and either they got greedy too fast, too quick, um, but they, they got themselves in a predicament now where they've lost a lot of the trust of the market here, and that's not going to recover overnight. So, it, 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 like I said, the craziest thing is is the heft of this story, the heft of the Pac-12 kind of breaking apart before our very eyes and the attempts to put it back together without USC and UCLA, it, it's not a story that is gaining the kind of traction here in Arizona that it should because people only care about the Suns and what they're doing and the Cardinals and their quarterback and what they're doing, and they pretty much lost faith in ASU football and the Diamondbacks and the Coyotes all simultaneously. We're Welcome talking to Arizona where it's yeah. 120 degrees. In the <laughs> We're talking to Dan Bickley, Arizona Sports 98.7 FM. Also writes a column there, uh, fantastic writer, uh, great radio show host. What I what I learned about you as well, Dan, uh, tell me about Whiskey's Quicker. It's a tribute band. Well, how nice of you to ask, man. About, about 12 years ago, um, I grew up as a teenager around music and around musicians, and, and I loved it more than anything. And I got to the point about 15 years ago, maybe 12 to 15 years ago, where I thought, you know what? It, the, the one thing I will always regret if I never attempt to do would be to play music live in front of an audience with a group of like-minded friends. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And, and through trial and error, through bringing in a lot of different people, uh, I've actually surrounded myself with four um, pro-level musicians. I am literally barely more than a hack just trying to do whatever you can to hang on but but i'm surrounded by guys who are absolutely spectacular and it's been one of the coolest experiences of my life to, to kind of get involved in the in the um the energy exchange between a group on stage and an audience i say this all the time if you're in a good rock band and you take the stage and and if you're sober and you're good you're going to get a good response from the fans. <laughs> it's much different. It's much different in athletics, where you have to compete against another human being who wants to take your head off. So that's kind of what I've learned there, John. All right, I'm going to play a, a little clip from one of your shows. Uh-oh. Here it goes. Here's Whiskey's okay, here Quicker with Dan Bickley. Are you singing here, or what are you doing? No. What song are you playing here? Uh, uh, it's the cover of. It's the one on your website, Even Flow. Uh, can't. I'm just gonna play it. Okay. You tell me after. Here we go. I like it, man. All right, John, so you know what? You know, you know what that is. Believe it or not, man. That was the day after a Diamondbacks game where my band was performing at Chase Field where Bronson Arroyo. You remember him, starting yeah. pitcher? Yeah. Bronson Arroyo. He joined us. That is Bronson Arroyo on vocal singing that song with my band um, as the musical accompaniment. How about I, that? I love that. How about that? I love that you're having well, fun, you, man. man. You sound like you're having fun there, which is the point of things, right? Like. It's a job, but you're you're having a good time. 
Yeah, no, listen, man, it, exactly. We all, we all have to chart our paths in life, do what you love, do what makes you happy, right? You know that better than anybody, John. Dan Bigley. And it, and, it wasn't that, and it wasn't that long ago that you and I ran into each other at the Kauai Airport, man, yeah. in Hawaii. Yes. Let's do that again sometime. Let's do, Let's it. do that again sometime. All right, I'm on my way there now. Hey, I need guys. it. All right. Dan, <laughs> I'll Dan, meet you there, bro. <laughs> Dan Bickley, thank you, my friend. Appreciate your time. You got it, man. All right, there he is, Dan Bickley, musician, columnist, radio show. Now, see, now I feel inadequate. I feel like I need to be in a band, Stephen. Steven, can we get a band going? Yeah, let's uh, let's do it. You got any got any names to go? Uh, I have no uh, musical talent. That is the issue. I'm, with I'm me kind of being a hype a man. I can hype people up. I can, you know, I'm surprisingly nimble for a six-two bigger fella. I can dance a little bit. <laughs> You're nimble. I love that. Sean, can you play an instrument? Uh, no. Not musically nimble, but like Steven, I can dance a little bit. Yeah, I think we, I can dance a little bit. We got no talent though. We have no music. We I'm, can't. Have, Everybody with tambourines and hype hype guys. Yeah, I'm really good at like jumping up and down with a towel, like waving it. Yeah. See? We got we got like four or five people that can do that. We have nobody who can sing or Peter. play an instrument. Yeah, Peter. Yeah. But he, uh, yeah, he's we got, got some one talent. guy. We got one, one, we got guy. one guy. Exactly. <laughs> we got one. All right. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Now I'm jealous. Dan Bickley in a band. Known Dan Bickley a long time. He was at the Arizona Republic as a uh, sports columnist before he left to go to do his own thing at ArizonaSports.com. And he is now uh, hosting a radio show there in Phoenix. He's hosted for a long time. Anna's in the studio. Anna, Dan Bickley was just on. He's in a cover band now. Impressive. Yeah. Like, it makes me feel like I'm wasting my time. Like, I need to go. <laughs> what are you doing? What am I doing? <laughs> what would you do in a band? Would you be drummer? No. Uh, guitar? Lead singer? I don't think I'm a good enough guitarist. I've never played a guitar. That, You'd be a singer. Wouldn't work. I don't yeah. know if I can sing. You can sing. Eh. You could pull it off. Uh, everybody wants to be the hype guy. We've figured that out. Steven wants to be the hype guy. Sean wants to jump around. Well, Sean is there, says, is there Sean, anything cooler than yeah. being like in sports and in a band? He's got it all. He's got it all. Dan Bickley joined us. Uh, he lives on the face of the sun, though. It's 120 degrees there Woo! in Phoenix today. Feels like 120 in Oregon. Yeah, that's because we're weather wimps. Yeah. You know, we have like a three-degree temperature range in which we're comfortable. Yep. It's a be between about 73, 72 and 75. Anything short of that, we complain about how cold it is. Anything warmer than 75, we start to talk about how hot it is. Turn into wimps. Yeah. We, that's what yeah, we we're do. We're spoiled. I think that happens every, Yeah, but it happens all over. I've, been, I've lived in the Midwest. I've lived in Florida. It does things to you there, too. In the Midwest, you, uh, you, know, you start to get snobby about the snow. <laughs> like with non-Midwesterners. So. Non oh, yeah. Oh, you don't know snow. Right. Oh, look at how you close your schools down. We don't do that. <laughs> that's true. You know, but I only lived through one winter there, and it was enough. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying yeah. is people in those parts of the country that have to deal with, you know, five feet of snow or conversely in Florida, like hurricanes or tornadoes across the Midwest, they look at us and they're like, you have no idea what it's like yeah. to endure extreme weather, to which we have, I guess, like the ice storm of 20... Yeah. No, but that, you know what they say? 
You know what they say? I was living in Tallahassee, Florida for a while. Yeah. And they would have storm warnings and they would have, you know, hurricane or tornado and, you know, all of a sudden it would just lightning storm and flash floods. Yeah. And all that. But they'd go, they would say, at least we don't have earthquakes like you guys have out there. Right. And, and I always was like, you yeah, know, but the earthquakes, you know, it's not like it's 1906 in San Francisco or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, was, I lived through the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco with the Bay Bridge collapse. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, was, was going to school down there, not maybe – 30 or 40 miles from San Francisco and I was on the road the day that earthquake hit and I thought I had a flat tire like normally you do not feel an earthquake yeah and I pulled over because I was like I have a flat and everybody else was pulling over and looking under their car too like everybody's like what <laughs> and then I looked up at a telephone pole and the telephone pole was like from a cartoon it was just going wonk wonk Ugh. wonk back and forth oh that makes my stomach yeah hurt. and I was like that, that was an earthquake yeah and uh, so they say that, but I'm like, earthquake's not that big a deal because it's not – there's almost no time to worry about the earthquake when it's happening. Yeah. It happens, it's over mm -hmm. if, if it goes well. Mm -hmm. But like the hurricane warning, tornado weather warning yeah. comes with like six hours of angst right. and boarding up your windows. Right. I'll take the earthquake, you know? Yeah. Earthquakes like someone walking by you and slapping you on the you'll, cheek. You'll take the earthquake except for the really big one in yeah. which, you know, hey. portions of our state will just disappear. I'm all good with <laughs> except for that one. I'm all good with like my San Francisco Giants in nineteen eighty nine, they were in the World Series that day when the earthquake hit. Yeah. October the seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine. Wow, look at you. Um, Giants and A's were playing game one yeah. of the World Series. Oh. When that happened. Yeah. And I was listening to game one, the opening of game one on the radio, and they were doing just kind of the pregame introductions when the earthquake hit. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was scrambling home to watch the game. And uh, the A's went on to win that World Series. I kind of felt like the Giants we're more we're more tuned into like this was a serious thing lives were lost you know they were out you know people i'm sure there were some a's as well like dave stewart was out you know helping dig people out of trouble but i don't know why baseball played that series so f rapidly after that earthquake yeah like they were still digging cars out of the you know collapsed bay bridge and they Jeez. were like play ball <laughs> You know, like i don't think if it happened today they would i think they would have postponed by a couple of weeks you think should have Giants might have won it if they did that. <laughs> Instead, the A's and Jose Canseco won a World Series. But oh well. Uh, Anna, I told the story earlier in the show. If listeners have been here from the beginning of the show, forgive me. But I told the story about my dad going through the Dutch Bros drive through yesterday. Nice warm day. <laughs> it's in the 90s. My dad, who's in his 70s, uh, approached the barista window and encountered an enthusiastic barista. And this is what you get at Dutch Bros. Like... That's kind of the magic of that windmill kiosk is you get somebody who is uh, excited that you're there, which oh, yeah. is really cool. And it's, you know, and I've talked with Joth, who is the CEO of Dutch, and I've told him, I'm like, man, whatever you're doing to hype up kind of the baristas before their shift, it's working, man, because you go in there and I defy you. Like, you might not be into their coffee. You might not be into the sugar. You might not be even to caffeine. Maybe you don't drink coffee. But I defy you to go through Dutch Bros and listen to the music that's being played and hear the kids kind of in the back. 
Yeah, yeah, here we go. And order a drink and not feel better about it. Okay? Bottom line, when you go to Dutch Bros, while you're laughing, I'm laughing because they wouldn't be playing this song. Why not? You don't think so? It's too old. They'd be playing more current music. No. This is like circa 20, what, 18? It's a classic. I'll give you that. Oh, I, I don't think that this is off the playlist at Dutch Bros. You don't think so? Steven, is that on the playlist, Dynamite, Teo Cruz? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think <laughs> it's a little old. Thanks for bagging me up. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Um, <laughs> anyway, Dad gets up to the window, long story long, and uh, and he uh, he says, uh, she says, how are you doing today? Which they do. Well, they say that. Yeah. And Or what are you doing today? And I always go, I'm working. <laughs> like you are, like, you know, crump. No, but my dad goes, it's 94 today. And she says, happy birthday. <laughs> He's only 70 something. He looked, when he told the story, uh-huh. his feelings were a little bit hurt. Uh-huh. But I think he was also a little hurt by the way that the rest of us all doubled over laughing. The mirth from the rest of us. And, and I think he was troubled by the fact that you know, this story had already, like, within minutes, this story made the rounds throughout the entire family, you know? <laughs> and so I think he was a, a little uh, miffed about that. Like, wait a minute. Come on. This is my story. How, how, why does everybody already well, know it? And then I told him I put it on Twitter, which I did. <laughs> and he was like, no, you didn't. Mortified. No, you didn't put it on Twitter. And I said, yes, I put it on Twitter. And then my mom immediately was like, it has 300 likes. <laughs> No, like. <laughs> we went around the dinner table as we sometimes do, and we said, you know, what was your highlight of the day? What are you looking forward to? And the best part of my, the highlight of my day was your mom saying that was the highlight of her day when <laughs> someone thought that he was 94 years old. <laughs> well, it happens. And, and, oh, and speaking brutal. of uh, thinking we're old, the Dynamite song came out in 2010. Okay. Oh, 2010. It's not that old. Woo. So, yeah, not. I think it's out of the rotation. 12 years. <laughs> yeah, it's out. <laughs> eh, it's yeah. Not that old. Give it another couple of years. So, it'll be considered retro. I'll tell you what. I'm going to go. <laughs> next time I'm in Vegas, yeah. we're going to one of those pool parties again. <laughs> You're going to put okay? in a request? I'm going to say, hey, can you play Dynamite <laughs> by Teo Cruz? <laughs> to which the DJ would be like, no. I, I, wasn't, <laughs> I just got back from Vegas yesterday. They, in fact, did not play Teo Cruz at yeah. the pool. What did you, oh you went to the pool? I did. All right, why are we talking about anything else but what happened at the pool? Well, in Vegas. Yeah. Come on, let's talk about in Vegas. In general. What now, happened in Vegas? Well, lots of things happens in Vegas, I can tell you that. <laughs> um, no, I mean nothing uh nothing too substantial. At the pool, we were at the Flamingo for some reason. I don't know why. I actually have a story. What year was this? Exactly. That's, <laughs> okay, so here, here's the thing. I got a story for it. So my wife my wife and me are big Cosmo people, and she's a big gambler. So she gets free comps, but she's not high enough yet to get weekend comps. She gets weekday comps. Okay. And so we had to stay on the weekend you know, with the job, and we, and we went with uh, her sister and her husband, and they could only go on the weekend. So we had to go cheaper just for that reason. So that's why we were there. We're usually You're, Cosmo people. What is your wife gambling? What does she play? Oh, she's a big slot person. And she's good at it. Really? You can get comped for playing sl- what, slots. And by the way, how are you good at slots? I, you know what? I don't know. 
but she is, and it is insane to watch. She will win. I mean, we got there to Vegas within five spins. She I, and I watched her five times. She touched the board or the button. She had won six hundred dollars. What? What? I'm is not she joking. playing dollar slots, five dollar slots, pennies? Well, what? Well, so she she plays penny slots, but she bets you know like three or four dollars a spin. Okay. And okay. so yeah, so it ended up getting like a bonus, and then and then she went to a different machine, and that was on the second spin she got a bonus. She went to a different machine, bonus on the third spin. Wow. No way! She's, I want to go to Vegas with lucky. your wife. Yeah, hey. <laughs> maybe some of her good luck will rub off on me. It, it does not rub off on me. I can tell you that. Well, but you're along for the ride. You're at the Flamingo. Who was playing? Bing Crosby, Sinatra. <laughs> who was playing? Uh, they do have Wayne Newton there still. <laughs> They do. They wow. do. I saw wow. Wayne. Uh, he he. You know he's looked better, but uh, <laughs> well, well. But they uh, at the flamingo pool, they were playing a lot of old hits. You know, they played Will Smith, Fresh Prince, Summertime. Yeah. Uh, they played. I love when you call me Big Papa. See, John, maybe that's our place, and we just didn't know it. We need to go there. Yeah. yeah Wayne Cos- Cosmo. I've been to like those wax museums. Is Wayne Newton looking like a wax museum? He actually yet? does. I actually said that exact same thing to my wife. <laughs> yes. As long as he has the same plastic surgeon as Cher, then then he's good. Then he's good. I gotta say something. Cher was walking around when we saw her. Yeah. She was like how old? I don't know. Ninety four? No, she's in her eighties, I think. She, she looks was phenomenal. She had on. I don't think it was a G string. What was that? Uh, pretty close. It's pretty close. Pretty close. She's right? 70, like, 76. She's 76. Okay. She she wore that outfit from Turn Back Time. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the sailor, the the ship outfit, that thing that looks like it's just black ribbon wrapped around her body. I have no idea what you're talking about. but From I, the music video. But the I, famous I never saw video. the famous music video. We only had two channels. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have MTV. You didn't have uh, YouTube? YouTube and Google? Yeah, not at when I was a kid. No. If oh. I would have had YouTube, I would have been a billionaire because I would have been like, I invented YouTube. <laughs> you know, so um, it, but she, her hammies were out, okay? Yeah. Her hammies were out. Yeah. They were on display in yeah. Vegas. Yeah. And she was, you said 76, Stephen? Oh, uh, yeah, 76. She looked good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She looks great. Yeah. Now, I, I can tell you. Up. Wayne Newton did not look good for his age. I don't know what he, how old he is, but... I don't uh, want to see Wayne Newton in a G-string. Sometimes it's disturbing when you see performers who are that old. You feel a little bit like, is this like a Weekend at Bernie's episode? Like, is this person <laughs> really alive? Are they just propped up right now? Well, I thought David Copperfield was a little bit that way. When, you know, we went and Yeah, saw but him. he might have been like that since he was 25, though. Yeah. That's but his persona. How, like, how old was David Copperfield? Again, mystery age. Like, he could be anywhere between 50 uh, and I 78. Think he's, uh, I think he's in his 70s. Yeah. I think he is, but he looks like he's 48. It yeah. just depends on what the temperature is and what he says. Oh, it's yeah. 94? Oh, yeah. happy birthday. <laughs> That's it. But Copperfield was interesting because he was not a real human being in my mind. Like, yeah. I've interviewed a lot of people, okay? Yeah. I know how to get to the core of somebody. Yeah. I couldn't get to him. No. I couldn't get him to be authentic. I couldn't get him out of his rhythm. Yeah. He was uh he has a lot a wall of defense up. Yeah. That is um you know impenetrable. Uh, essentially. <laughs> I mean we had him we had him on the show. Yeah. Like we interviewed him. Yeah. We hung around after the show. We got to sit in one of those little U-shaped booths uh-huh. that with David Copperfield, just Anna, me, and David Copperfield just shooting yeah. the breeze, yeah. talking about magic, I talking know. about radio. It was bizarre because same thing, like, you know, 
uh, you and I both, like, I think we are able to get to who people really are a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah like, their core personality and kind of strip away the facade, strip away the talking points. And I think we both kind of pride ourselves on that. But during that interview with him, I kept feeling like, uh, the interview was going to end and then he was going to rip a mask off his face like on an episode of Scooby-Doo and somebody else completely was going to be underneath, you know, like I just wasn't sure he was ever really there. I could play a little bit of a cut from that if, uh, Stephen, you turn my board back up. Yeah, uh, but I am going to play just a tiny little, just to give people a taste because I always feel like we tell people, I, I like them to hear it themselves. But So the scene was essentially we watched Copperfield's show. Then uh, his publicist told us to stick around and, uh, you know, he would meet with us privately. And so there was like some meet and greets and stuff. We had to kind of watch people go through that. And then Copperfield, Anna, and I sit in this booth and we have this interview. I don't know where I am in the interview, but I'm just going to play a, just, just a snippet of it so you can understand. Like the guy would just not let us get to know him. I found a card that... He was stationed in Roswell. Never told us that's true, wow. and everything else you can decide what's true or not. Yeah, it's it, and it's. I think it's so interesting to have that positive encouragement at an age when you hear people in sports all the time who say, "Oh, you're never going to play professional sports." That, that doubt that you talked about. My mother gave me that doubt. My yeah. mother was uh, constantly telling me I couldn't do it, and I loved her for it because it really yeah. made me stronger. It made me work harder. So I've talked about on Oprah a few times. Uh, yeah. uh, it's uh, kind of a good balance of, of, of negative and positive, but it, for me, it worked. You really seem to carry that with you. I mean, I can tell him that some of that not saying about your dad is painful, and yeah. and still to this day, yeah. isn't it? Well, I mean, we all have our own stories like that. Yeah. You know, I'm certainly not alone. And I walk in the audience. I watch people, you know, crying or yeah. being very uh, touched by it because in their own way, they, they can relate to it. David Copperfield talking about his dad, but not really talking about his dad. But not really dad, talking about his know? dad. Yeah, exactly. That was a perfect deflection answer, wasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't it? Like, he never yeah. really, he kind of, like, reiterated what you said and then just spilled it back on to how everybody can relate to it. Because I thought I had him. I know. With that thing, because he was talking about his mother. His mother was incredibly negative, told him, you're not going to amount to anything. You're no good. Yeah. Nothing. And he says he thanked her for it, but I think there's a lot of pain in there. Yeah. I think he has to say that now. Mm-hmm. But then his whole act was about his dad, who right. died young. Yeah. And I said, you know, there's a lot of pain in there, isn't there? And I just stopped. Yeah. Because it puts all the pressure on him. Right. And he says, oh, I talked about it on Oprah, but he's not really talking about it. And then he says, you know, <laughs> I see other people crying because yeah. they're having their own experience. And then he glosses right over <laughs> right. it. <laughs> Never got there. And that is a tactic, isn't it? Some, like as an interviewer, is there anything that drives you more nuts than when an interviewer is too heavy handed with the questioning process? Yes. Too long. Too yeah. many. Just shut up. Ask the question and shut up. Mm-hmm. How so? Yeah. You know, uh-huh. is it painful? How so? Right. That's the question. Get out of the way. But often you will find an interviewer who is eager to tell the audience how smart they are, how much they know, or, or maybe the interview subject. You find this in sports. Some of the reporters who I think feel insecure about covering the sports and asking questions will ask the coach a question that's not really a question. It's just, let me tell you that I'm paying attention. It's question. a statement question? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you were going uh, double tights and, you know, the A-gap there, I know, <laughs> and you know, we're all in the rest of the room, I'm going, for heaven's sakes, man, that's a private question. I don't want to be talking about the A-gap in here. 
I don't right. know what an A gap is. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Are you more or less interested in college football now that the haves have lined up in the Big Ten and the SEC and Pac-12 is trying to keep those two conferences within view of the front windshield? Are you more or less interested to see what is going to happen? I want to go around the room. I'll take your phone calls on this as well at 503-417-7575. More or less interested in kind of what happens in the next four years i think some people are probably turned off i think some people are fearful that college is on a path that will lead to a separation between the uh those two conferences and everybody else like you know who by the way who are those blue chip schools going to play after the small and medium-sized market teams are all destroyed that's another question but are you more or less interested in what's going to happen let's start with sean sean you lead us off more or less interested um, my answer to that is I'm slightly less interested. I'm like a lot of people, you know, kind of a traditionalist when it comes to this sport, really appreciate kind of the, the cultural aspect of college football. Like we've talked about countless times in the show, you know, West coast football. And then in the sec, you have, you know, teams that are just have mammoth linemen and it's just different cultures, different styles with each division. And we're kind of losing that a little bit. But what I keep telling myself is like, even though I'm a little bit disappointed about what's happening off the field, I know that when my ducks are on or when, you know, there's a big time game on, I'm, I'm not going to watch any less. You know, I, I feel like this overall won't really take away from my enjoyment of the sport. Like if Oregon is in an intense fourth quarter, even a non-Oregon game, if it's a college football playoff and it's a t- close game, um, I, I'm going to be locked in. So that's kind of my uh, long-winded answer to that one. How about you, Steven? I'm definitely more fearful of anything, right? Like I am interested in seeing where the team's going conference, but I'm fearful that it's like you said, it's going to just hurt the college program in or college um the college game in general, right? Like who are these big time power conferences gonna play? The haves and the have nots, the difference between those schools are gonna be so big. I'm gonna miss it, right? Like these small schools, what what's the point of playing against these big time schools when they're just leaving all these and they're joining their super conferences, right? Like it it seems like there is a potential end game where college football especially gets hurt really bad and that it turns into just a south and a midwest product and the west coast is just left out i'm i i get what you guys are saying but i'm also you know i'm looking at the nfl in the nfl we have the afc and the nfc we have two conferences it and it feels like that's what these entities want to be like they want to create two mega conferences let's put them on opposite sides of the bracket and let's play it out uh, to the end and I'm holding out hope that the solution for the rest of us isn't that we have to pick new teams within those conferences, right. but that the ACC feels like it's a little bit of an outlier here that has some pop to it still because it has Clemson and it has Miami in it, in, in football at least. And so I'm kind of holding out hope that the ACC ends up combining with the Pac-12, Big 12, 
and presenting itself as this third option that gives the rest of us a dog in the fight. I, I agree. I want that to happen so bad because that is the beauty of the college game. It's different than the professional game. Like these, This is not the NFL. It's not the NBA. This is college basketball, college football. That's where the love comes. There, There's the emotional attachment to all these schools, whether you grew up in that city or you went to that school. You are a part of that team that I think just has a different love than you know all the professional leagues. It's interesting because I am not as a diehard, you know, Pac-12 traditionalist, so I don't have that feeling of loss when it comes to the traditions and the rivalries that are potentially at stake for being lost in all of this change-up. But what I care most is that things will just be competitive, that it's not just going to be blowout game after blowout game, but that, like the NFL, um, there's going to be enough parity between these teams to make the season overall interesting to watch. Because, I mean, when you say that college sports is not like professional, I would argue that it's becoming more and more like professional with the NIL world and the crazy amounts that are going to certain players and whatnot. So I would just hope that in some magical way, it makes the competition more relevant, more interesting to watch throughout the season and not just in those, you know, final weeks or in the postseason. There, there was no part of me really when I would watch um, the college football season that said, hey, a Pac-12 team has to win the national championship. I never really thought that as I covered it. I just covered it. But there's part of me now that really wants the Pac-12 to survive this. And then how amazing could it be to end up with an Oregon or a Washington or a Utah in an expanded playoff meeting USC in like <laughs> the first round of an expanded playoff? Right. And there, I, I don't know what I would do, but I suspect I would be sitting there on press row hoping that the Pac-12 kicked the teeth in on Lincoln Riley and USC. Like you had to leave this conference and guess what? This conference just knocked you out of the playoff. Do you think that's even feasible? It could be. Yeah. But the Pac-12's got it. First thing is, the Pac-12 has to pull together and survive. And that's what they're doing right now. Let's. We'll be right back after this break. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up in the happy hour, the 5 o'clock hour, we will be talking to John Platts, former Stanford athlete. He is the uh, voice of Stanford sports in many respects, Stanford football, Stanford radio. He's written a book called 100 Years of Stanford uh, Men's Basketball. He is an attorney as well, and he is a traditionalist by Pac-12 standards. He'll be joining us at uh, about 518 from Palo Alto to talk about Stanford's position in this whole thing. Nobody's checked in with Stanford. I'm about to do it in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll talk to John Platts, who's also a uh, regular listener of this show. He actually, Anna, John Platts believes, he listens, you know. Mm-hmm. Probably listening right now. Hi. He be- <laughs> John Platts believes you should run for governor. Oh, well, then we should really not, doubt his judgment. Not me. He, he says no shot for me. He thinks you would make a wonderful politician because oh. you're relatable. you got a good story. He thinks you're smarter than I am. It's oh, implied. Boy. 
He, uh, he, why not politics, Anna? No way. No way. Why not? Couldn't do it because I'm not crazy. <laughs> You'd have to be a little bit nuts to I go could, into politics. Yeah, but I could get Especially used to. these days. Like, does the governor have a mansion like in a lot of other states? Uh, yeah. Is there the governor a governor's? lives somewhere, yeah. Is there a governor's house? Like there's I a desert, so. like the White House, like there's a house pretty that sure. goes this to the governor? Pretty sure. You yeah. live rent free? I don't know. I could get used to that is what I'm saying. We were talking about a commissioner in college football. Does she want to be a commissioner in college football? How about that? Now that would be kind of fun. <laughs> Platts <laughs> thinks you're the right candidate. Oh, gosh. He thinks you could, uh, in quick order, make a run at the governor's chair. Is that what they call it? The chair? <laughs> Seat? Seat. Office? Seat, chair? Office? I just want to know if, if, does Kate Brown, does Governor Brown have a residence that is like a gated, you know? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's the okay. same one that like other governors have lived in in the Salem then area. Then you need to do this. I need to live in that house. Yeah. <laughs> I want to mow that lawn. <laughs> I want to be the pool boy. You want to be the, that make me? the first husband I'd, make, I'd be the, the first husband of the state? No, I'm just saying. Of the beaver state? I'm not saying you'd be the first first husband. You'd be yeah. a, a first husband. Yeah. That, I can get used to that. Good living. Do I get free <laughs> drinks at Dutch Bros? Hey, that's the governor's husband. Oh, wow. All right. He's coming up in hour three. The 5 at 5 is going to follow this quick update. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. Well, you're in the happy hour. Appreciate that you're here. I appreciate that you're along for the ride. I'm a little nervous, Anna. Why? Tomorrow, uh, I'm doing Twitter Spaces, 10 a.m., Reddit College Football asked me if I would do a 30-minute Q&A with their college football audience okay. tomorrow morning. I've never done Twitter Spaces. Any advice, Stephen, Sean? Have you guys been in Twitter Spaces? Uh, I have. I've done one Twitter Spaces. I mean, it, I think you'll be okay. Uh, the more thing I'm worried about for you is just the Reddit fan base. And they may <laughs> ask some weird questions. They may get a little weird. With but me. no, it'll be easy. They just ask you questions. You just talk. It's basically uh, a talk show on Twitter. It's, it's pretty cool. And it, and granted, you have to use your phone to do it. Is that right? That's what I did. Yeah. So you just yeah, they're gonna send me a link. They said Reddit college football. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, I figure why not. You're actually nervous. No, not really, but okay. Kind of like for me. I'm what? Yeah, I'm more concerned about just sort of the maelstrom of like comments that uh, whenever I've poked around on Twitter Spaces. I can't stay with it for very long. Like, it's so disorganized to me. People are just chiming in left and right. I don't know who's yeah. talking. But but so help me out with this, uh, Stephen. When you're doing Twitter spaces, how many people can talk at once? Uh, so they do have, like, a mute button. So if you want to talk and you're a fan, like if someone has a question for you, you have to request to talk. So yeah. um, I believe only one or two people at a time can actually talk. So I'll be, I'll be on there. The way I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, Stephen, but uh, – Reddit College Football is telling me, hey, they reached out. They said, hey, would you do this? They're, we want you to talk about what you've been reporting on and you've been talking about on your show. Um, and they said, are you okay taking questions from the audience or you just want it to be us? I said, I don't care. I'll answer questions from whoever. And they said, okay. So my, I'm gathering that 
I will click on the link and be invited into spaces. I'll be able to talk. Like, they won't be muting me. Were you ever in those when uh, Oregon was hiring Dan Lanning? No. <laughs> oh, it blew up. I was convinced that Twitter spaces was, like, the future of media. Maybe it still is, but yeah. it really went crazy when uh, the Ducks were hiring their new football coach. I heard that. Yeah, Rob, so the, uh, Rob Mullins joined it, uh, Oregon AD, whatnot, but... I had a radio show. I was like, I have a radio show. The last thing I want to do is be on Twitter talking to a bunch of people that I'm already talking to on radio. Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing is you already have a platform. But what it sounds like is there's probably like a moderator, like a Reddit moderator yes. who then, you know, will get all the requests from people and then they will talk and then they mute them as soon as they're done. And then you do your thing, answer your questions. All right, let's do it tomorrow, 10 a.m. Look at my Twitter. I'll tweet the link to get into the Twitter spaces <laughs> if that's how it works. Let's play the five at five. The five at five. Well, some interesting news in the Pac-12 conference today. Uh, I don't know where to start, but I'll start with the word litigation. The word litigation carries some meaning, right? You and I, we hear litigation, we go, "Uh uh-oh. Well, it turns out that the University of California's Board of Regents are going to meet and discuss UCLA's move to the Big Ten next week. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News reported it first this morning. But I reached out to a former state senator in the state of Washington to ask him, like, hey, in the filing, the UC system uses litigation. Is it possible that they're going to sue UCLA? Mike Bumgarner, former state senator who also served as the Washington Senate Higher Education Committee vice chair, said he says that no 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 they're not using litigation because there's going to be a lawsuit they're using the word litigation because it's a loophole in the sunshine laws that allows almost anything to be potential litigation and when you read it it means we're making this meeting private it's commonly used word public officials use it to take public meetings private Litigation, Anna. Litigation. Mm. Number two, go ahead. Tiger Woods, speaking from uh, Scotland before the British Open, is expressing his disappointment in those who have joined the LIV Golf Invitational Series. He says he thinks Commissioner Greg Norman has done damage to the game and the players who went have turned their back on what has allowed them to get to this position. He went deep saying that uh, the 54-hole format is curious. He wondered about world ranking points and is suggesting that guaranteed money would lead to less incentive for players to practice well and earn their money in the dirt. Yeah, because they're going to get fat and lazy when they know guaranteed money's out there. They're, it's going to be like watching golf from the 1980s all of a sudden. You know, the golfers all got fit. In the last couple of decades? Yeah. Let's go back to 1980. Fuzzy Zeller, Craig Stadler, Jack Nicklaus. <laughs> These were not bastions of physical health. I think we're going to see a return on the LIV Tour. They'll just call it the XLIV Tour. That's what they'll call it oh, in the end. All right, number three in our private five. How about this? The Utah Jazz are changing their tune. It's not just a heavy or a clever headline. Heavy. I went back right to that. Uh, the Jazz shut down trade inquiries for Donovan Mitchell. But now some rival teams in the NBA say that the Jazz are showing a willingness to listen 
on possible trade scenarios. The asking price is steep, but in the wake of Utah's Rudy Gobert deal with Minnesota, it looks like the Jazz are not simply dismissing calls about Donovan Mitchell. They're listening. Change is inevitable in the NBA. Donovan Mitchell, 25 years old, in the prime of his career, and the Jazz are listening. Kind of makes me wonder about the Blazers. Should they not be listening with a 32-year-old Damian Lillard? Anna, number four. Sticking with the NBA, I don't know why I'm so amused by this, but I am. Former NBA star Richard Jefferson has crossed over and made his debut as an NBA official. This was last night during the Knicks Blazers Summer League game. And I think it's very charming. You liked it. He was received pretty well through the night by the fans, except for the Knicks fans who were in attendance at that game in Vegas, because I guess he's got a whole history of, you know, playing hard against the Knicks or something. So Here's Richard Jefferson talking about officiating. All right, how did it feel, RJ? Honestly, that is one of the harder things that I've ever had to do. I've never coached Little League, let alone (laughs) an NBA game with these athletes and all of this stuff. You know, Monty and the rest of the crew give me such like a a great crash course, but man, it moves fast. Steven, uh, Blazers played pretty well in that quarter that Jefferson officiated. Yeah, you, Anna was just saying, you know, Knicks fans don't like Richard Jefferson. Maybe it was because it was 28-12 to 12 Blazers in the second quarter. <laughs> Blazers like Richard Jefferson <laughs> when he's officiating. They prefer him to uh, Scott Foster and some he's, others. Does that mean he's a good official or a bad official? I don't know. If it's that, you know. <laughs> well, there's some guys who happen to call games certain ways. Blazers probably like that his why is interesting too though he's saying in part because not a lot of people would put themselves in this position and the more information he gets the more informed he is as a broadcaster there you go (laughs) i don't think it's bad i do think that experience is helpful i think every nba fan should have to officiate (laughs) on some level before you can yell at an official finally our fifth thing in the five at five i want to talk about Le'Veon bell He said today that he's not going to be playing in the NFL this season. He is shifting his focus to boxing. That's right. Running back made the announcement at a news conference to promote his upcoming fight. He's going to fight fellow star running back Adrian Peterson at Crypto.com Arena in Los Angeles. That's coming up on July the 30th. Le'Veon Bell, former uh, rushing champion in the NFL, has he rushed for 1,291 yards and 12 touchdowns with the Steelers in 2017. Then he held out all of 2018. Signed with a free agent with the Jets in 2019, released by the team midway through the following season. He's only had 429 rushing yards for four different teams. Le'Veon Bell saying that he's shifting his focus to boxing is kind of like me saying I'm taking my political career more towards radio. <laughs> I don't want to be a politician. Le'Veon Bell, got news for you. The NFL doesn't want you anyway. Nobody wants me to be governor. I'm going to shift my political aspirations into radio and writing. Le'Veon Bell, boxer. That is the five at five. Good stuff there. Let's first talk about Le'Veon Bell. Guys, um, are you interested in seeing washed-up running backs box? Not Anybody? even a little bit. Really? No. I kind of am. No. I mean, I've seen enough with you know the 
the Paul brothers. I don't really even know. This they is are. different. But yeah, I, I don't know. I've seen How's Nate so? Robinson. I've seen these basketball players. I'm not interested in it because we know these guys are athletes. We know that these guys can perform at a very high level. May not be for boxing, but Adrian Peterson is a freak athlete, and so is Le'Veon Bell. These guys have had a lot of athletic success. So to try to see them maybe pivot to the ring and fight each other, mm. you know, it's one thing if like if Adrian Peterson was fighting a former boxer, it's like all right, Adrian, or sorry, excuse me, a current boxer. If it's Adrian Peterson versus a boxer, then he's probably going to lose. But you put two football players against each other. I'm kind of I'm interested in this. You're intrigued to see it. I wouldn't I, pay for it. I'm yeah. not going to pay a pay per view for it. But if okay. it's on, all right. So you're mildly interested, curious to see what happens. I think it kind of fits in the uh, genre of TikTok because my algorithm on TikTok believes that I like to see people get cold cocked in bars. I don't know why, <laughs> but it keeps playing me those, and I watch them. That's probably why. Uh, it, this fits in the same kind of curiosity for me. Like, you know, one of these guys is going to get knocked around. And uh, I'm curious about it, too. But like you guys, I'm not paying to watch this. Anna, are you interested in? The funniest comment that I saw about that story was someone who wrote, The Zodiac Killer has also announced, announced plans to skip this year's Met Gala. He's planning to focus <laughs> on his scrapbooking instead. There you go. In related news. That is... <laughs> That is related in some way. Uh, let's go to the jazz story. The jazz are shopping, at least listening. They're doing a listening tour on Donovan Mitchell. Should the Blazers be listening to offers for Lillard? This is how I'm going to start the polls today. Yeah, I, I totally think that, uh, you know, I've always been like, come on, Damian Lillard. I feel like the Blazers are being a little bit too loyal to Damian Lillard. We know that Damian yeah. Lillard's loyal to Portland, and that's fine, but I feel like the Blazers are a little bit too loyal to uh, to Lillard. And I feel like unless it's an MVP caliber player, which Dame's not quite at that level, you know, if it's Jokic or Giannis or Steph, I feel like, you know, a contract like that is warranted. But I think the Blazers should be a little bit careful, you know, buying in for the next five years to an aging star. Or, well, a superstar, but not like top tier superstar. I think yeah. it, it could be a really bad contract in a couple of years. No, you're 100% on that, Sean. And knowing the Blazers, though, they're not going to entertain it. You know, they didn't even do a search for a new GM once they got rid of Neil O'Shea. It was Joe Cronin. They just gave it to him, and then they didn't even go out and look for anybody new. Jeremy Grant, it had been known that he wanted to come to Portland. That's what they went for. They didn't go and shoot for the stars. They just took what was given to him. So I think that they should always entertain trading a guy like Damian Lillard because he has all the value on the team. But I just I don't have any faith that the Blazers would ever do that. And so they are really just going to give it, give all the money to Dame and ride or die with him, which you know is probably good enough to maybe make the playoffs or at least compete for the playoffs. But after that, who really knows? It sells you some tickets, but it doesn't win you games. Like I, I think fans would like it because fans like loyalty. Fans like, hey, they like to fall in love with their own players. It sells you tickets, but it doesn't win. It doesn't win big. And, you know, the Blazers back in the day, when before they extended Brandon Roy with a max contract, shopped him around. But they didn't shop him around because they wanted to trade him. They shopped him around because they wanted to see, is he worth the max contract? And the answer they got is, hey, we're getting a lot of interest for Brandon Roy. Like, a lot of other teams are interested in him. I, I do think they should be listening to offers. They should always be listening. Nobody should be untouchable. Uh, there's Nobody. some guys that are untouchable. Steph Curry is untouchable. Giannis is untouchable. Uh, even Luka is untouchable. But Dame's not on their level. You know, I think yeah. there's just a handful of guys. Like, but wouldn't you, if you're if you're Golden State, don't you just say, hey, look, he's untouchable, but bring me an offer. 
And if somebody comes in with an offer at some point as Curry's career diminishes as he ages, you'd start listening. No, I mean, there's there's always a price, right? Like, you are right, John, that there always is a price. But like John said, those guys aren't going to get traded. No. Uh, but I do, I want to bring up the point of, do Blazer fans have all the loyalty to Damian, Damian Lillard because of the whole jailblazer era and how they went for bad guys and they tried to win the championship, didn't win it, where they know with Dame, like, he's a good guy, he likes the community, he helps out around here. Even though they're probably not going to win a championship with Dame, they love him because he almost feels like one of their own. And he won't betray you. I mean, the, there's the dirty secret, though. Like, I think down deep, I think Damian Lillard is deeply appreciative that the Blazers drafted him. But I think, you know, let's make no mistake, that loyalty equation is not a loyalty bond between Lillard and the fan base. It's between Will Lillard and that contract. That is the loyalty. His loyalty is, you're going to pay me $60 million? Hey, I'm your guy and I'm staying here. Because there are some teams, I think, that would not have extended him that offer because they would have went, hey, you're coming off a of surgery. Hey, you know, but I think there are 10 or 12 teams in this league that would have done exactly what the Blazers did. So I, I can't wait to hear you guys on the pulse coming up 6 o'clock. And tune in if you're listening on 750 The Game because these two cats are going to carve it up. All right, up next, John Platts, the voice of Stanford. What the hell is Stanford thinking? We'll find out coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I've been talking about the Pac-12 an awful lot, thinking about the Pac-12, supposing about the Pac-12. You can read me at johnconzano.com if you want to Receive that in your email inbox every morning uh, as I write. Uh, it'll come directly from me to you. Uh, we can have a conversation about it. But uh, a guy that I wanted to get on the show for a while, John Platts. He is the play-by-play -play voice of Stanford basketball, Stanford football. He's on the broadcast there. He's written a book, 100 Years of Stanford uh, Men's Basketball. And he is a lawyer, and he's a former Stanford athlete, and he's joining us now. John Platts, where are you right now? Set the scene for us. I am in uh, outside my home, John, in uh, northern Santa Clara County. I know you know the county well because you grew up in the southern part of the county. I'm in Mountain View, California, where it is a beautiful, sun-drenched, low 80s afternoon. Mountain View became known when I was in my college years for Shoreline Amphitheater. They had the music venue there. Is it still, uh, you know, is it still the venue in that area? It, it very much is. Uh, you got, you know, you got your good share of baby boomers and the acts that were big in, in the 70s and 80s. You had Carlos Santana's. I mean, the, the Dead & Company comes around. I'm, I'm not a deadhead, but they were here a couple weeks ago. And Fourth of July, you know, show is, is fantastic. But they, they have shows all year round. So, yes, it's... Uh, I'm on the opposite. I'm on the uh, the more western part of the of the, of the city. It's, a, it's sort of a big city geographically, and uh, the shoreline is still going strong. You bet. Let me ask you. Uh, we're now, you know, a week, uh, two weeks away from when USC and UCLA announced they were leaving, out the door, um, shocked a lot of the conference. But what was the reaction there at Stanford and in the community? Well, I mean, again, Stanford is real good about being tight-lipped tight about these things. I mean, sometimes on things I'm tipped off and other times I'm not, and usually the bigger it is, the less I, 
I'm tipped off, and I, I wasn't on, on this one. So, um, you know, I think I think my guess is that they were surprised as others, other prominent folks in the conference were. The San Francisco is real good about you know quickly huddling and triaging and getting the right people connected, which for Stanford is, is faculty and to some extent alumni and certainly coaches to uh, to get their thoughts. And so I, uh, there's there's been a lot of a lot of intellectual wattage I think being applied to this uh, you know at the present time. But a surprise, sure, absolutely. When when you think about Stanford, you you don't think about win at all costs. It's a different place, special place in that way. Uh, how how does sort of the movement in college football to these two mega conferences, you know, strike you? And is there a place in that for Stanford? Could you foresee Stanford ever leaving if they were invited into the Big Ten, or would there be a would there be a long pause there before they even came up with an answer? Well, I mean that's. That's the question. I'm going to see David Shaw in a couple of weeks, and I imagine I'll have a, a private moment with him. I, I have not seen him since the news came down. Of course, San Francisco football coach. And, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a $64 million question, literally. Uh, I mean, Stanford has, has had the good fortune of having both, of maintaining the academic reputation through the decades at a high level while being consistent, consistently, sporadically is probably a better word, you know, near the top in the in the major sports. I mean, certainly women's basketball has been top throughout, but, you know, football, men's basketball, baseball have had their moments during the last quarter century, last three decades, where, where, where it has been important to do so because I think Stanford, like other schools, has benefited from athletic success. I, mean, it's a, it's, I think, John, it's a fact of human nature when you're an alum and you're a person of considerable means and your your school is at the cultural forefront, which, let's be honest, sports is at the U.S., you know, America's cultural forefront, people are more inspired to write the big check for the computer center or the geology building or, you know, what have you. And Stanford has really benefited from that. So how how does that answer your question? I think Stanford does want both, but I think there's a limit on the sports side. And I, you know, would Stanford join a, a... be the third team, for example, and this is just a guess. I'm not speaking for Stanford, for, you know, at all. But would Stanford be like the third team to join the Big Ten? I, I'm highly, highly dubious. Uh, for again, the, because of the academic mission being, it, it will always edge out the sports thing. Even though there's a lot of big time athletes and coaches who want to win and win championships, and they have, but they will defer to the academics uh, if, if push comes to shove, which we have a big time shove here. So. Uh, they want both. I, I just, I think Stanford's number one thing, John. I think that they, and again, I'm trying to separate me from right. what's good with the school, but I, I think staying together, the, the remaining teams in the conference staying together, I think is what Stanford desires most. John Platt's with us, Stanford football and basketball radio broadcaster, also an attorney and a former Stanford athlete. Let me ask you just the traditionalist in you, the purist in you. You see this conference lose two founding members. That hurt. Well, absolutely it did. I mean, you know, as someone who's, you know, had a grandfather who was a track captain at USC and five or six family members that went to that school, and I kind of grew up with it and went rogue and went to Stanford, came up to the northern part of the state. But just the 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 four sort of cornerstone, cornerstone schools in, the, in California, you know, USC, UCLA, Cal, and Stanford, they really, John, I think have levered off one another. I think the gravitas of one has been imported to the other. They they share that this year, this one's big, this year, that one's big, that sort of thing. But they really 
I think have benefited from the from the association being in a conference and to have that unmoored. You know, I just I think it's one of, of several costs that I think are going to prove to be more significant as as the, the as USC and UCLA's departure goes on. You and I have sort of shared off mic the the travel issue and that I think is going to be significant. Uh, maybe more so for the non-football sports, but certainly. You know, as one who, who did a lot of traveling and does a lot of traveling with broadcasting, that's, that, that part's not underrated. Um, so there's that. But just, you know, not having us in UCLA, you've got three or four generations of people used to going to games and looking forward, if you're an Oregon fan, to the USC game or, or if you're a UCLA fan, you know, Cal coming. All, all that stuff is, you know, has been, been unmoored. And, and I, I think, I mean, it's, it's going to take some adjusting, I think, for some folks. Is it fatal? No. But is it is it... More than noticeable, do you feel it? Yeah, absolutely. Could you foresee a scenario in which Stanford and Cal are not in the same conference, or do you feel like those two entities would try their best to stick together? I think they would try their best to stick together, John. I think that's, that's been a not that emphasized a piece of this. Uh, you, you look at the rivalries around the league, and I, and I think the USC and UCLA gets a lot of run, but I, I, I've I feel like Washington, Washington State, Oregon, Oregon State, Cal, Stanford are the ones where, you know, there's a there's a, a cost in multiple dimensions by by ripping that up. So, you know, I mean, the big game has gone on since 1892. The schools are are are, are similar in academic profile. One's public, one's private, but just they they, they they fit into the Bay Area cultural fabric so tightly and so historically that if they're not in the same conference, again, it's a it's a it's a big change that I think diminishes both. And so I, I, w- I would be surprised if they don't end up playing in the same conference, whatever it may be. John Platt's with us, Stanford football, basketball, radio broadcaster, former Stanford basketball player himself in the 1980s. Um, you know, you, you suited up in this conference. You wore a uniform. You were a Pac-10 athlete at the time. Um, you know, as you know, if you could take off the broadcaster cap or take off the attorney cap and just speak as an athlete, in the conference, um, you know, what does that mean to you when you see, uh, you know, some tentpole members saying, hey, uh, you know, this thing, uh, there's nothing good happening, we're going to the Big Ten? Well, it definitely, you, you feel the loss. Uh, you know, again, it's a sort of a memory loss. What was isn't anymore. And we all have that happen in life. And people pass on and, and things change, jobs change, this and that. Um, but, you know, again, John, it's really worked. You know, how, how many things have worked for a century? You know, the, uh, the, the, they've had different names, you know, Pacific Coast Conference, Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12. You know, around the fringes, you have progress or changes or movement. But the core remains, and it, it's been, it, there's been, because there's been a big market for it. There's been a big market in people's hearts. There's been, obviously, an athlete and coach market. Uh, the, the schools have liked fielding big-time teams, and, and, you know, again, playing at SC and UCLA, and I, I'm a little, you know, if you're from Los Angeles, Los Angeles Los, the Los Angeles area, it's, it's, it, it's more of a thing, but playing at UCLA in basketball, Pollock Pavilion, that, that was an enormous deal. Going into the LA Coliseum, as I do as a broadcaster, when SC, you know, or when Stanford USC have 92,000 there, I mean, that's thrilling. And it's not to say you can't have that in another conference or another state, which is something about the two you know, California schools. Or more recently, USC and Oregon have had great games in the Coliseum. And, 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 and you know, just, again, you're, you're, you're 
changing something that was working and working well, in my opinion. Yes, I understand the, the money and finances, and maybe we can veer to that to that aspect of it. But I mean, at some point, how much is enough income to where the the extra marginal amount is doing a mobile phone or something? And are you going to going to give up some other things because you want this extra income that you may or may not need? I mean, you know, my part of my yeah. very very tough to run these depart- departments on a dollar and cents basis, but. Man, oh, man, I just, again, something something is lost, and something has been lost. John Platts with us, Stanford football, Stanford basketball radio broadcaster. Uh, you wrote a book, 100 Years of Stanford Men's Basketball History, and, you know, this conference uh, was founded in 1915 in downtown Portland, Imperial Hotel, uh, Washington, Oregon, Oregon State, uh, you know, UCLA, USC were part of it. There's... There's part of that nostalgia that I'm I am trying to let go of because I know the world's changing, John, and I know there there could be some good things that come out of uh, a potential Pac-12 ACC partnership or wherever it ends up. Give me a silver lining. Is if this conference does stay together, the ten members band together and ESPN backs it, and they can at least see the Big Ten and the SEC through the front windshield. Is that a win in your mind? I, John, I think, and I, I think you hit hit upon it. I think the win is, you know, Stanford and Cal staying together, the Northwest schools staying together with Stanford and Cal, whichever the additional ones, ideally all four of the remaining schools staying together. I, I don't care if they're in a in a Pac-10. I don't care if they're in a Pac-12 where you absorb two other West Coast or Western United States schools. Or if you if you have an ACC partnership, you call it the PACC or something, where it's the ACC and then they have their schools, and then on the other on that West Coast, you got the the eight, eight ten you know eight or ten or twelve Pac, Pac, former Pac twelve schools, and then maybe they play for a football championship. But just keeping the West Coast schools together, having a Washington State Oregon State game, you know, being able to continue what what you had, I just I just think there's there's value in perpetuating what you had for the fans, for the student athletes. You know, you, I read something from Stephen Jackson, the former uh, Oregon State running back. I mean, clearly he values I felt he values his time in Corvallis apart from what he accomplished on the football field. He, he remains connected as an Oregon State Beaver. I mean, there's, there's value in that. And I think part of that is because you're in a league like the, the Pac-10, Pac-10, Pac-12, which, you know, you, you've got – he maybe has friends across town who played at the school or something. So I just – again, it's just the – the losing, the, the losing of something that's gone on for a while. Um, I'd like to see the, 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 the schools together, whether they're a single entity, John, or whether they're the Western version of a mega conference. John Platts, I really appreciate you, man. I know, I know you tune in and listen on occasion. I, I thank you from that, from the Bay Area. Uh, earlier in the show, Dan Bickley was on from Phoenix, and he sort of talked about, you know, the Phoenix average Phoenix sports fan really tuned into the Suns, really tuned into the Cardinals. Pac-12, eh. Is the Bay Area upset about this, or is the Bay Area a little bit apathetic and, you know, we'll just deal with what happens? Uh, interesting question. Uh, I think, as with so many things I've seen in college sports here, you know, at a surface level, uh, it's it's a non-issue. Hmm. I mean, this is, this is very much a pro- area with the certainly the Warriors and their great success. The 49ers have, you know, been a, been a pillar here for since the forties. And of course, you, you, you know about the giants and, uh, 
and that. So, but but there's a lot of college, you know, college grads in the area, and a lot went to schools. Again, you know, your Stanford and Cal's, but your Washingtons and your Oregon's and your Arizona's. I mean, everybody's here, and and they like their college sports, and and uh, so you're, you're not again, you're not going to get get an outcry, but they'll 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 be disappointed. It, it won't. It isn't like it is, John. I'm sure in in you know Eugene. Uh, you know, or in the Northwest schools, uh, so you're, you're not going to you're not going to see you're not going to see it outwardly. But I, I think it, you know, at, at a more person-to-person level and private conversations in, in your local uh, coffee shop or whatnot, people are saying, "Hey, what's going on?" John Platts, you're the best. I appreciate you. I will catch you at Pac-12 Media Day. I I look forward to seeing you there, John. And I I heard what you said, <laughs> Anna, for governor. And I want to keep, keep you on extended. No, but, um, I, I second that. I mean, I think she uh, she'd be. Can a normal person, John? Like I, I was talking to myself as you two were talking about this. Can a normal, accomplished person serve us in government? Now, again, don't don't answer it here because I know you got to jump no. a break. But I guess that's part that's partly what I'm saying when I'm saying that somebody with a name recognition and the achievement. Uh, of Anna Gonzano, I think she'd be a fantastic governor, and there's probably dozens of her like that in various states. And it's a shame that that they don't, they don't, if they are, if they were disposed to having that kind of job, that they wouldn't run because oh, it's too crazy or whatnot. Have we come to that point? I'll leave you with that. Yeah, that, that's a good point. She has zero interest, but she thanks you for that. I think she should do it because I'd like to live. And we found out the governor, in fact, does have a house that the governor gets rent free in the state of Oregon. And uh, I, I would like to live in that house, mow that lawn, and, uh, and hang out. It would take your writing, John, to a next level, just describing <laughs> the house. That's right. We'll take you on a tour. John Platts, he's the best. Stanford radio, football, basketball. I think it's interesting because in the Pac-12 footprint, we have college towns like Pullman and Corvallis, and I'll throw Eugene in there. And, uh, and then we have some other cities, and you've got Salt Lake City, and you've got Phoenix, and you've got Tucson and other places in the Bay Area. And, I think it is interesting to kind of take the temperature around the conference. Like, people in Salt Lake City are, are tuned into this. They're Jazz fans, but they're tuned into this. Like, the Utah fans are very interested in what is going on with the Pac-12. Uh, the, the fans in Pullman, they're anxious right now. Corvallis, anxious, trying to figure out, are we going to be with the haves or the have-nots? Is this conference staying together? Oregon fans, I think, are wringing their hands a little bit. I think they're disappointed they were not invited into the Big Ten or the SEC. At first glance, I think they're holding out hope that, you know, maybe UCLA won't go and they'll take us instead. I mean, I, I do think Oregon is sitting in that alternate position, kind of hoping that it could be included. But I don't think the Big Ten is interested in a million households in Eugene and Portland. Not after they grab $5.7 million in Southern California. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't pencil. They're not going to cut you in at $75 million a year in their media deal when you have a valuation of about $35 million. Uh, when it comes to your media rights, 30 or 35 million. So I think, uh, you know, the, the, there's a tremendous interest in our state from what's going on and what's going to happen because it's going to impact these two huge entities in our state. Arizona, state of Arizona, as Dan Bickley pointed out earlier, especially Phoenix, there's some apathy about this. And some of it is caused by the fact that Arizona State has just not been competitive. They have not challenged for a conference title. They haven't played in Rose Bowls in recent years, and Herm Edwards has been an embarrassment in some ways at Arizona State. So I think the Arizona State fan is going, bring on the Suns, bring on the NBA season, bring on the NFL. We'll figure out where Arizona State's playing later. Um, 
And then the Bay Area, I think, is even even weirder. And I'm, I mean that with all due, due respect. You have the transient Bay Area community that is very much engaged, as the guest said, with the Warriors and the Giants and the A's and the 49ers. And, you know, while they may care about Stanford and Cal, they don't live it and love it and breathe it and tailgate it the way fans in other parts of the country do. And on top of that, there's an academic culture at Cal and Stanford where they're going to get some natural opposition from sell it for people who go, don't sell out at all costs. So I think this conference, part of the problem with trying to galvanize this conference is that the viewpoints of the respective universities and their fan bases are dramatically different, dramatically different at Oregon and Oregon State right now. Oregon State fans just want this conference to stay together. Washington State fans, just go, hey, keep this conference together. Utah fans, hey, we just got here and we got on top. Why is this breaking up? Keep it together. Arizona State, eh, we'll do what's best for us. Arizona, hey, we're going to follow Arizona State. Colorado, hey, whatever these others do, we're along for it. Uh, it's really different. And, you know, that's why I wanted to get some flavor from Phoenix and the Bay Area today. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My dad will be uh, part of tomorrow's show. I've got a lot of people. I mentioned my dad visiting. My mom and dad are visiting for an extended period. My dad has made appearances on this show before. Uh, all right, all right. He will come on tomorrow's show. I believe he's going to come on in the 4 o'clock hour tomorrow in lieu of Anna coming on, or maybe Anna will join as well. But Dad will be on the show. He'll tell stories. He'll tell a story about getting in a fight with Carlton Fisk and hitting a home run off Louis Tiant and whatever else comes up on tomorrow's show. Uh, he will join us on tomorrow's program. Uh, he said, uh, I said, do you want to come on tomorrow? You want to come on another day? He said, let's get it over with. All right. So tomorrow, Dad will come on the show. For those of you who have requested it, you will be delighted. For the rest, uh, I don't know if you'll be delighted or not, but it, it is never boring. Uh, coming up, top of the hour, uh, right here on 750 The Game, Stephen and Sean, the SS Pulse will be taken off today. Stephen and Sean on the Pulse. Uh, you guys are hosting it tonight. You're going to, I think, start the show by talking about Damian Lillard. Are you guys prepared for this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What we're doing here is I got two segments. He's got two segments. And Ooh. we don't really know a ton about what he's going to bring to me. And I, he doesn't know a ton about uh, what I'm going to provide to him. You know, I've already kind of showed my hand about the first segment. But, yeah, we're just kind of we're, we're splitting this thing. And uh, I think we're both super excited. Yeah, give it a little rough outline of what's going on and uh, roll with it. So you know, always prepared for anything. But yeah, it should be uh, should be a lot of fun. We we had a half hour, you know, uh, maybe two weeks ago, and it was good. So I feel like uh, this hour long show is gonna be great. I am excited for you guys. I also think it's a great opportunity for listeners to tune in because you're gonna hear these guys kind of figure it out as they do it, which uh, all of us can relate with. So that is coming up the pulse right here on 750 the game. Um, guys, we got to take one more break. Is that right, Stephen? 
That is correct. Let's take a quick break so we have a good segment at the end. We'll lead you right into the pulse. I want you to leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think the NBA is on to something with Richard Jefferson in Summer League. Like, he couldn't do that in the regular season, but for those who don't know, Jefferson officiated part of the Blazers-Knicks game, and uh, I thought it was a big success. He was mic'd up. It was interesting. It brought viewers in. I think it was, uh, you know, along the lines of what we were talking about earlier, we were talking about, you know, potentially watching Le'Veon Bell and Adrian Peterson fight. And if I'm, I don't want to speak for you, Sean, but I think part of your intrigue was, hey, these are great athletes. I want to see what they are do, what they, how they do, uh, outside of their normal discipline. Same goes for Richard Jefferson officiating. Like we get an opportunity to see, uh, you know, a guy learn and show the rest of us how difficult it is to officiate. I, I think it was entertaining, but I also think there was a aim here by the NBA. Do you guys think the NBA did this to take some heat off the officiating? Oh, 100%. Because you look at whether it's on social media or it's even on the broadcast. I mean, during the NBA Finals, you have uh, Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson openly complaining about the bad calls that the referees are making. So you know, to put a guy out there, and not only an announcer, but a former player as well, just to show how hard it actually is to referee a game, I, I think it was a good move by the NBA to get a little bit of uh, positivity on the referee side. State of Oregon, there are different referee associations in Oregon that have reached out to me in the last few months. Uh, they essentially want to talk to me about how difficult it is for them to recruit officials. Let's go. Let's unpack that a little bit. Um, why, do, why don't young people want to officiate games? You guys are young people. I I used to do it. Um, I I used to not seriously, but I used to um, you know referee youth football um, in my community, and it was very very hard. I did it for four years, and you know I started as a a sideline judge, kind of the person that um, was on the sideline with the opposing coach, and you know you kind of just mark it. Uh, but then I ended like as the main official, the guy that actually spots the ball and you know uh, calls you know the the ready for play. Very very hard, and even youth football, you know, it's a thankless job. Like I had, I had fans booing at me. I had, you know, coaches in my ear, and I was officiating fifth grade football. So wow. I can see, uh, I can see why, you know, I think it's it's a position that has a very negative connotation. It's very subjective, you know. Like you can officiate a great game in your mind, but then you know a fan base for you know for wrong or right can still uh, you know accuse you of rigging the game or whatever it may be. So I really think it's a thankless job. Not really sure how it pays at the professional level or at the level that you're talking about, but uh, I, I could see why people don't want to be an official. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, loving me into the young person crowd. Uh, yeah, you I, bet. I got ID'd in Vegas. You know, I'm 35, but I got ID'd <laughs> in Vegas. Now I'm part of the young crowd. I feel good. Uh, for me, yeah, I, I, I had to ref when I played college basketball, just like we had some summer camps and summer leagues. Um, and so the, the team had to do the refing, and it was awful. Uh, for So for me, it's like it's an, it's just like how I said the commissioner of a college football was a thank, it would be a thankless job. That's exactly what this would be. You would only be recognized if you do a bad job. If you have a great game refing, no one's going to talk about, oh, that was a great officiated game. 
we're only going to talk about, well, that was you missed this call, this call, this call, and you're a terrible ref, right? And so I think that's the reason why a lot of people don't want to do it is because you don't get the satisfaction of doing good at your job. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right there. And I think there, I think there's a bunch of factors that go into it, but much in the same way that I think law enforcement was vilified you know, I think it became incredibly hard for good law enforcement officers in the last few years to do their jobs because there were some bad law enforcement officers out there that made it difficult for everybody. And I think in that same way, what we see now that is put forth kind of in our culture is bad calls, missed calls, bad strike calls. Uh, you know, the referee missed the call. Referee, you know, blew the foul call in the NBA Finals. Referee missed the call at first base. Uh, we see that, uh, you know, affirmed and reaffirmed over and over again. I also think, I think it's a hard job because in our society we have turned, you know, everybody wants to kill the umpire. And, and sometimes and in some cases you see it turn into, in youth sports especially, umpire getting assaulted in the parking lot like you know nobody's signing up for that that's somebody's grandpa who's making like 16 bucks an hour to call balls and strikes on the weekends and he's retired or that's some kid who's 15 and that you know that's just his job instead of you know back in the day they used to have a paper route now he's the umpire so i i think it's thankless i think it, it the umpire's vilified or the referee's vilified all the time in our culture and I think it's a hostile work environment by its, by its very nature. And I think there are really good umpires that probably are talked out of sports and talked out of the business and shown the door because, you know, you got people who just can't handle themselves in the crowd. And I grew up, you know, as part of kind of the rite of passage in our community. Like, you were a little leaguer. And then when you aged out a little league and if you were playing high school baseball, a lot of us were umpiring the little league games. We were all over the city, and and we, sometimes we worked together, and sometimes we worked with umpires who had called our games when we were kids, and they were older, and and I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about conflict resolution and managing people, but I have to admit, like, I was making five bucks a game, and I was in, like, 95-degree uh, heat calling balls and strikes, and you know, but it was a different time. I wasn't getting ragged on by fans all the time. It was occasionally a coach or a player that would say something to you, but it wasn't like somebody's mom who thought, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to turn into Karen here and yell at the umpire all game. Like, I just would caution people who are screaming at youth sports umpires and officials and referees to remember that, it, you know, at some point, if we didn't have them, there would be no games. Like, there is no ability to have a game. And it, it, I think we got to be as gracious as we are with our own kids who are playing uh, when it comes to the umpire. And I think there's a great example or a great opportunity when an umpire misses a call to, to say, hey, sometimes in life you get a bad call. Let's figure out how to deal with it instead of screaming at the umpire. Like, it's not fair. I want you to leave it here. The pulse is coming up. Sean, Stephen are going to host it. It's going to be wild. Leave it here.